In other words, you thought she wasn't gonna make it out here and she'd come crawling up back to you, so why bother to pack, right? <laughs> like I said, you're very fast, Argon. <laughs> you mind if we hear some tunes? Hey, that'll work. Is there any Christmas music? This is Christmas music. Here's the thing about Mac Jones. The trials and tribulations are actually good for Mac Jones. It's actually people that are criticizing Mac Jones. It's like you've never been to a movie before. Like, oh, yeah, die hard. Ooh, I started it. Walked out, though. Walked out once he had the glass in his feet. Oh, you know, at that point, there's zero chance that a superhero is going to be able to beat all those bad guys with glass in his feet. That's not it. The point is to go through the trials and tribulations. The point is to go through these setbacks because that's what makes the hero better. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Grace had but a few seconds to choose the direction in which to flee away from her swarthy pursuers, who, as her father had so teasingly predicted, were carrying torches. Grace was in a hurry and did not notice Bert the former fugitive with a liberal attitude to other races who never did make it far. Grace was angry. Mandalay had fossilized in a picture of this country that was far, far too negative. America was a many-faceted place, no doubt about it. But not ready to accept black people? You really could not say that. America had proffered its hand, discreetly perhaps, but if anybody refused to see a helping hand, he really only had himself to blame. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Wednesday, January 26th. 2022 so i have been told uh, we will be here tomorrow uh, for our book club final session on alice siebold's lucky wow it has been a fantastic read it is not that long of a book but wow it has been impactful normal broadcast time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific alice Broadwater, Rick James and all will help us wrap things up tomorrow. Our broadcast for today, in fact, I can even explain the audio a little bit 
you it would almost be better my original my vision for this broadcast was doing this sometime in the month of December so it would have been super easy to convey the holiday so-called Christmas theme right with Die Hard because that's one of the central movies uh, in terms of why we had our guest back on the program today uh, it was Christmas time just a few weeks back and that movie was mentioned over and over and over again uh, it's almost 35 years old the film Die Hard 1988 release and the second audio segment the first clip was actually from the film Die Hard where they uh, are blasting uh, Run DMC's Christmas song lots of Christmas music a variety of different Christmas music uh, in the film Die Hard which was a summer release anywho the second audio segment was <laughs> random sports talk and they somehow switch from talking about the NFL into Die Hard I wouldn't have cared but this was on December 20th 2021 five days before Christmas and again 34 years removed from when this film was released and still this movie is so popular that 34 years later we think enough people have seen it that we can use this as a regular cultural reference that we think the general population would grasp. Of course you've seen Die Hard. John McClane. Anywho, the last two were just, there's so many amazing segments from some of the films that we will look at today. Not saying that they're great films that you need to watch all of them and study and all of that, but at least in some of them, there are some really profound moments about what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, which is the entire reason we're having this dialogue today. Hopefully we'll get some better understanding of how racism, white supremacy operates. Uh, and at minimum, uh, maybe some reminders of why uh, reading is more important than watching television. Uh, if you are sitting mindlessly, aimlessly in front of the television screen, you might have a film like Die Hard, which is conveying a lot of the same tired racist concepts you might sit around and watch that film for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and never really think, wow, what kind of white supremacy racism am I watching? That would apply to pretty much anything else. Certainly any of the other films that we're going to talk about today and any other TV programs you were watching, I would submit anywhere in the world, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon stream, whatever else. Uh, our guest for the broadcast today, man, if we are alive next month, 2022, February, it'll be 13 years. Uh, on the one hand, that is wacky. We have been at it. On the other hand, we have failed in our mission to replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. We say that all the time. But way back when we returned to the air one of our first guests on the program springtime 2009 we discussed his book color monitors the blackface of technology in america my memory is so bad it's been so long i forgot that die hard is one of the films that is talked about centrally in this book i kept seeing die hard and hearing it referenced christmas film christmas film christmas film and I looked 
and I went back and looked at the book, which I did get Dr. Uh, Kevorkian mailed out copies uh, way back when, one of the times he was a guest on the program. Uh, and so I got my autographed book, snatched it back, flipped through. Oh, my goodness, that's right, Die Hard. I go back and watch it again. <sighs> Anywho. Uh, the book is uh, quite revealing uh, in terms of, once again, the many different layers of white supremacy racism and somehow things can be slightly refined, make a few changes here and there and say, hey, we got progress and things look great. And no, it's kind of the same old imaging with a technological flair, but this is the same old blackface. Anywho, it is always a hoot uh, to have him on the program. In fact, Way back in 2009, we were kind of half joking that there's so much money uh, with regards to the Matrix franchise that they will probably do another installment at some point. And 13 years later, yes, they did do that installment. So I was also very interested, uh, in addition to Die Hard, in talking about the Matrix franchise to see does the latest installment hold true to what he wrote way back when. Uh, he has consistently been willing to share a little bit of time and some of his expertise uh, to discuss his book, uh, the films. I know many listeners always look forward to having him on the broadcast and hearing uh, some of his thoughts and observations. Uh, we will chat it up once again. Uh, joining us live, University of Texas, Austin professor, uh, Dr. Martin Kevorkian. Dr. Kevorkian, are you with us again, sir? Yes, yes, uh, yes, Mr. Rickey. May, may I be heard? We can hear you clearly. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Wednesday evening with us. Yeah, th thank you so much for for having me back and and uh, uh, you know remembering uh, you know what uh, what we've been talking about together over over the years. And uh, thank you for continuing to sharp help sharpen and clarify my thoughts uh, on this very important matter of racism, white supremacy. The problem in the known universe, I have unfortunately concluded. Uh, some of the folks have been with us, so they've heard you many times, and sometimes they'll have uh, film suggestions like next time Dr. Kevorkian comes by, can you all discuss this, or uh, even questions for this program. Uh, hopefully we have some new listeners. Uh, folks can share, tweet, Instagram, Facebook, any other social media. Let folks know we're on the air. The number, if they want to listen via phone, 720 one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate if you have a question about the specific film we'll try and do it this way see if we can take your question live time so if we're talking about any of the films die hard uh, Matrix Resurrections, any other films, put a hand up, bang, we'll see if we can get your question right then. Uh, and if it not, it takes you a while to think about it. We'll get your question once we have wrapped things up. Uh, Dr. Kevorkian, for folks who have not read Color Monitors, maybe they have missed you uh, over the years. Anything that you would like to share with folks about the work that you do? Uh, yeah, that that's, uh, I would say, you know, the Introduction that you've given is is the one that is 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 most useful. But uh, I've thought in that book about uh, the particular ways that that non-white roles are are limited, constrained, uh, and and exploited. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I continue to have interest in the ways that those representations persist. Um, so, uh, yeah. Awesome. I remember way back when we even discussed that because Dr. Kevorkian doesn't really use the term non-white in the text. Uh, and we talked about that would make it so much more explicit precise uh, in terms mm -hmm. of what the problem is white supremacy racism people being treated because they are not white um, let's see before we hop to the films and I'm part of uh, my own discipline today is to see if I can be efficient to get through the callers and as much of our uh, content for the broadcast so two things and then we'll get to the film uh, number one uh, the film legend Sidney Poitier I have so many clips that would be insert cowbell right there. Uh, Sidney Poitier just passed away. I said, oh man, you did actually write about him. Uh, so I flipped to color monitors, uh, page 14, you write, uh, the substantial body of scholarship that treats the depiction of blacks in motion pictures draws several historical vectors that point toward our present question of the white construction of technophilic blackness, outlining, outlining an earlier consumer appetite for serious, educated black characters, Rob Edelman remarks that if Sidney Poitier had not existed, he would have had been invented. In the aftermath of the Holocaust and the Second World War, white moviegoers were no longer content with the escapist singing, dancing, and melodramatics that dominated pre-war cinema. In Slow Fade to Black, Thomas Cripps similarly notes that post-World War II pressure to portray racial equality, which found release in such devices as the soldier unit picture with blacks joining in the war effort the token black team member in a film like the hunt for red october is nothing new but the technological inflection given to the black presence goes beyond this generalized post-war pressure uh, and i even flipped the footnote you add a little bit more uh, about mr portier uh this is down uh at the bottom let's see one down at the bottom of 170, oh, a footnote, oh, there we go, down at the bottom of 173, this footnote number 26. Uh, the Robots and Empire brings the colonial dimension of roboculture most forcefully to the fore. Asimov had, has consistently developed parallels to the black experience from his earliest robot novels onward. The Caves of Steel explores robot-human tensions in the workplace hmm. as a murder investigation brings together a human and a robot detective in a reluctant partnership that anticipates the Portier-Steger team from In the Heat of the Night and its seemingly countless movie imitations. Also anticipating the Portier-Steger success, the popularity of Asimov's Leger Bailey, R. Daniel, 
team demanded a rapid encore uh, in Naked Sun 1956. Asimov again plays up racially inflected friction between the leads as when the narrator comments on the boy address that Earthmen always used for robots. I'll stop there. This is from the footnote, but a few times uh, Sidney Poitier gets a nod. He's been mentioned so much lately with his passing. Uh, any thoughts on what you've heard about his long, illustrious film career and, and what's been said, movies that have been referenced since he's passed? Yeah, well, I uh, just wanted to remember that I believe the last time that we, we conversed, um, I think it was The Defiant Ones that came up because uh, I come across James Baldwin's uh, analysis of that film uh you know in the in the book excerpt that you just read you, you know i talk about the appetite of white audiences uh but one of the beautiful things uh james baldwin did is talk about the reaction of black audiences in the theater watching that film and how it would be different um from how uh, white audiences would would consume it uh and it's it's a movie that i think was remade as, as more recently as fled but it shows to uh, a uh, a black and a white prisoner who uh, escape together, and there's a moment where um, the Sydney Poitier character is going to get away on a train, um, and he can either you know reach out his hand and, and help the white character up and possibly you know uh, fail to get away, or he can just make a clean getaway. And the the, the audience that in, in the theater where James Baldwin saw it was was shouting at him to like don't don't help the guy uh don't help the white don't help the white guy just make your getaway um and i remember you made the, the comment that it's you know it's, it's gratifying when you, you can see a non-white audience that is is smarter uh than the uh, you know representations or the entertainment that is being presented uh to them as something that should be the norm um and uh you know one thing i thought of in that regard um May I ask what what was the date of of of, of Mr. Singh Poitier's passing? Um, is it very very recent or? Uh, it was yes, very recent within the last uh, thirty days. Let's see, let's get an exact date because I think it was this year. Uh, yeah. Let's see, yeah, it was this year because sometime at the early part of January, January eighth, January eighth. Yeah, yeah. So, I, but one, one thing I noticed uh, when I went on to, to to Amazon to see the movie King Richard, and I typed in King Richard, and the recommendation that I got from Amazon, you know, from the algorithm, is uh, the Lilies of the Field, which is a 1963 Sidney Poitier film, um, which I had not seen. But the summary is that he plays a handyman who builds a church for some nuns. So again, it's a story of a black man helping white people. Um, and, you know, as you say, that's, you know, one of the things that would, uh, you know, enable, uh, that enables, you know, the system of, of white supremacy. Um, so, you know, if, if, if that sort of presumption that that help was to be expected um, or if it, if it was not being extended in that way. So I, I thought of that with The Defiant Ones, and I thought of that with, you know, I'm looking up this movie, King Richard, and what I get as a recommendation is The Lilies of the Field uh, with Sidney Poitier. Uh, 
we'll get into that that the movie King Richard uh, yet, but I was I was struck that that was what the algorithm was thinking. Like if you're looking this up, here's what you should be watching. Right. So. Wow, that is amazing. Uh, yeah. Especially keep that in mind, I guess, uh, when we get to King Richard, uh, compare and contrast those two films. Wow, mm-hmm. and that's that's been a theme, I think, pretty much every time we have spoken about helping non-white people, black people specifically, helping white people. It hasn't mattered the genre sci-fi we Mm -hmm. talked about this with black mirror we talked about this with older films uh we talked about this with uh, the the purge franchise i don't even know what genre that is but the same thing comes up there helping white people is it gonna come up today oh no helping white people major theme don't help white people uh let's see uh oh my other question You are in Texas, so this is for folks who've been listening to the cows, uh, at least for the last 10 days. So this two weeks in a row, white guest on the program from the great state of Texas. Uh, I'm in Seattle, Washington, so huge contrast, depending on where you are geographically with the whole COVID response. Here they have uh, have had vaccine requirements in place for quite some time. Can't go to the gym, uh, coffee place restaurants, uh, at least not sitting inside without proof of vaccination. Uh, masks are required to go, you know, pretty much any, anywhere indoors. Uh, I know it's very, very different in Texas and many other parts of the country. Uh, a term I've been using is white defiance. Uh, and I've been just pretty mm-hmm. much gleefully announcing like my ignorance in terms of, for me, I wear my mask. I distance, I do as I'm told, uh, in terms of, you know, going on, I don't, you know, all right, I'll do that. There have been so many white people, uh, who have been (laughs) unruly about all of this. I'm not going to wear a mask on the plane. I'm not getting the vaccine. You're not going to tell me what to do. And I've just said, wow, I just, one, I haven't seen that many, I haven't seen any black people out doing this. And I've seen hordes like thousands of white people engaged in this behavior, even politicians, like it's not just ignorant down and out white people. It's been of all spectrums of individuals classified as white defiance. You're not going to tell me what to do. It's my body. What, uh, and you're in a, in an area of the world that's kind of been leading the fray in this, you know, you're not going to tell me to get a mandate and wear a mask. You're not going to tell our children to wear a mask and all the rest of this. And it seems like some of the critical race theory has kind of creeped in there as well with all of this. Mm -hmm. But do you have a thought Mm -hmm. on what is motivating the conduct of a large number of white people in what I'm terming the white defiance that we've seen for two years now? I think that's an excellent term. I think white defiance is a very accurate and and helpful term for what we're, we're witnessing. Uh, you know, what I've seen or witnessed or experienced um, is kind of a gradient, uh, you know, moving from Austin outwards. Um, and you know, I, I think I've, I've shared this with, you know, one of your listeners, you know, ask, you know, you know, what's it like, you know, doing work or research or talking about racism, you know, the way you do in, in your work? Uh, you know, I'm very fortunate to be at UT Austin where that kind of work is supported um, and where, you know, people 
wear their masks, among other things, even if they're not, uh, you know, even if there can't be a, a mandate. Um, and, uh, you know, similarly, we've, we've got a, a, a school district that, you know, I suppose in its own way, it's not white defies, but, you know, defied the, the governor's mandate and says, no, we are going to require our students to wear, wear masks. Um, I guess my point I was going to say is that if, uh, in those instances where I started to venture a little further just outside of Austin uh, to some of the surrounding areas, I see a lot more of, of that white defiance around masking for sure. Um, and I think it does overlap uh, a lot with um, the resistance to critical race theory uh, just very, fairly recently. Uh, in the news, um, there was a, a, a non-white school principal, uh, again, not in Austin, but outside, in, you know, outside of Austin in Texas, you know, who was fired uh, or, you know, removed from his job for really, you know, making a very thoughtful, uh, you know, not at all it, what, what I would think, you know, no one at, at, at University of Texas would think of his extreme statement just about standing up for equity, um, but, you know, the, the people that were in his, you know, constituency and, you know, I have to, I have to believe, you know, white parents just weren't having it. So it's, it is that version of white defiance of the belief in absolute autonomy. You can't tell me what to do. You know, I don't want my kids having to wear a mask. I don't want my kids having to hear about critical race theory. Um, that, that, that is, that is out there. Um, although I, again, I, have to say that I'm more or less sheltered from it right where I am in, 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 in UT Austin. Right on. Uh, I do know, uh, I guess they may at UT Austin, I think that is thought of as being a more, what's one of the, I don't use these terms, but I think generally they would use terms like liberal, more progressive area of uh, Texas. Uh, that notwithstanding, I think one, they did have that uh, FedEx bombing was pretty close to there. Not too many years back, uh, targeting a black person uh, or it was, I think it was mm. two black males that died uh, in that attack. Uh, and then more generally, I think the UT Austin area also, they have quite a bit of uh, the term they use is uh, gentrification uh, in terms of the black people. Mm -hmm being displaced just like Seattle and pretty much everywhere else where it's being renovated, improved. This is a nice, cool place to live. Certainly not an area for black people. Uh, let's see. Yeah. So, so, you know, there's a professor of African-American studies and Asian-American studies at UT Austin, Eric Tang, who has done a study of what has happened to, to the, the black population of Austin and how, uh, you know, I think, maybe more so than other uh, urban centers. I, mean, I think he, he stated at the time it was the only major metropolitan uh, city uh, with a shrinking black population. And so that was something that he published a few few years ago. Um, but it is a result of, of gentrification. So again, you know, I'm talking about being in an environment at the university itself that supports work on uh, one of the preferred terms on campus is, is anti-racism. Um, but, but yes, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the city even itself is, is universally uh, hospitable, supportive of, 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 of the thriving of, of non-white life. 
Don't know any place that is currently, unfortunately, but Eric Tang. I have to check out some of his research, racial dislocation in Austin, Texas, uh, which has been talked about a lot, but that's amazing. Uh, wow, Eric Tang, we'll check out some of his research. Uh, all righty, being efficient, we will see if we can get to all four of our films uh, and my ordering, just so folks kind of know, the four films that we're looking at today Matrix Resurrections just came out a few weeks ago. Uh, King Richard just came out also a few weeks ago, literally. Uh, Die Hard, uh, which is way back 1988. But I mean, well, again, now, if my vision was us doing this broadcast, maybe mm, a week, 30 days ago, somewhere in there, actually would have had to been. Yeah, no more than 30 days ago because Matrix Resurrections didn't come out until right at about Christmas time. So that also was causing a bit of a delay in being able to do the program. Anywho, Matrix Resurrections, Die Hard 1988, and then Mandalay 2005. Uh, Mandalay is just, yeah, we'll get to all that later. So we're starting uh, with Matrix just because that one just came out that's kind of foundation to color monitors as soon as i saw that they were making a new matrix like oh man we should have dr kevorkian back on the program let's see if his thesis from color monitors does that hold true all these years later they do another film do we see some of the same uh patterns and what have you uh in the film uh, also, for listeners, just so that you all know, like, wow, lots of clips today. So trying to be efficient with that. Uh, I think the clips increase as we go. I only have one clip, although juicy, from The Matrix, and then they will be more and more of them as we go. I was stunned to see how many clips I had from Die Hard. But wow, I guess there are many reasons why that film has remained uh, significant 30 some odd years on, starting with The Matrix. Um, uh, well, I guess we'll do the same thing, kind of take turns uh, with folks kind of giving us, Dr. Kevorkian and I, giving a synopsis of the films. Uh, let's see. You will <laughs> give you the honor. You can do Matrix Resurrections if you want to give kind of 60 seconds if you had to tell someone what this film is about. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a brain twister, but on the other hand, it's, it's, uh, in one of the opening lines, it feels very familiar. Um, well, there's a, that's one of the opening lines. Looks like old code feels very familiar. So it, it opens with a, a sequence that seems like it's straight out of uh, the original Matrix. Um, and uh, But what we soon learn is that this is a replaying of the Matrix in the form of a video game. So... Uh, this is, you know, some uh, 20 years on, the Keanu Reeves Neo character is now trapped again in a computer simulation, um, but this time he thinks he's a computer programmer who's programming a game called The Matrix that replays all of the greatest hits of, of you know, his own heroic uh, endeavors in The Matrix. Um, and... Uh, so the movie is uh, essentially about saving him and Trinity, who is trapped in this simulation also, uh, and liberating them once again uh, and uh, relying on all some of the similar uh, 
uh, tropes and same, you know, racialized division of labor uh, that goes into freeing um, these white characters. I also think of them at the very end as, in their own way, exemplifying uh, what Mr. Renegade just talked about as white defiance's ability to do anything they want with impunity. So to me, that's the arc of the movie. Uh, it tries to find a different version of allowing these uh, basically white characters to ima uh, imagine themselves as enslaved and then to have them be uh, freed again. With, with the help of a, uh, what would we say, a menagerie, a, a merry little band of multiracial helpers? Would that be inappropriate? Yeah, no, that's exactly, yeah. Yeah, and so the, the you know, particular roles that get replayed, the, one of the key roles in Matrix was that of the operator um, and uh, his brother Tank and Dozer, and I talk about, about them as even in their names, they're being reduced to kind of pieces of equipment, right? Whereas you have where Neo and Trinity are these clearly ethereal, transcendent, heroic beings that are supported by Tank, the operator. Hi, Tank, I'll be your operator. So again, in every single iteration of the Matrix, there has been a non-white operator who doesn't get a lot of screen time, but plays this crucial role of enabling the fantasy and the action of the central white characters. So it was first it was Tank and Dozer, and they die in the first one. And then there's another character named Link, like Hyperlink or like a link on a you know web page is your operator. Uh, in this case, it's a character named Seek. Um, and you, you first you just refer to a Seek. Later you find out that that stands for Sequoia, um, and so there's, uh, but I think also when you think of seek, it almost to me uh, sounds like a, like a search engine kind of function, um, uh, just the way it's pronounced. Um, but even in the combination between Sequoia and seek, there is this idea of a non-white body functioning as, as what, you know, uh, I sometimes refer to in this, in color monitors as the natural machine. There's this idea that there's um, something very natural about uh, the non-white body that can be counteractive to the oppression of technology, but there's also the way in which it's completely aligned with that technology. So I, I see that in the character Seek. Uh, another very traditional, uh, you know, you know, this array of multicultural support team is Hanno. Uh, just so they say, uh, you know, Seek, Seek is the best operator. Hanno is the best pilot. Um, so he's kind of playing a traditional uh, chauffeur role. Uh, again, you know, I, here I'm thinking of, of Die Hard uh, with, you know, the Argyle character driving the, the limousine. Uh, thinking back to other conversations we've had, I remember, Mr. Renegade, your, your insight, you're always thinking of your summary of, of the action movie Collateral uh, with Jamie Foxx and, and Tom Cruise as being a, a, a violent driving Miss Daisy. Um, so there's those two roles, the, the non-white character as the operator that takes care of all the technological thing, part of it, and the non-white character as the driver or chauffeur who just drives everyone around. Um, someone supposed that Hanno might be a version of Han Solo, but of course, unlike Han Solo, this character is uh, 
in a site called TV Tropes, he says it's, it's the out-of-focus character, not the central character, but the character that's in the background, gets hardly any screen time, but just plays an instrumental role. Instrument of uh, white liberation in the film, White Defiance, uh, walked us nicely right to our sound clip for this film, which will cover some of what you detailed and give us a little bit more info about the crew. I'm just going to read a little bit from uh, Color Monitors just to see. Now, even that is something to think about now. This book was published way back when it's been over a decade uh, since this here book was published and all that time since they did the last matrix that all of these tropes would remain and in such detail that in and of itself is something to think about and then the widespread nature of these tropes that we'll get to with some of the other wildly different films in terms of genre and time of when they're produced and all the rest uh, this is from page 131 color monitors the chapter techno black like me you write <clears throat> Neo and his white love interest Trinity with their idealized hacker names enjoy the soaring freedoms of cyberspace. This would be applicable to the new film too. The functionally named Tank, the black technician, does the work of hooking up the heroes and getting them into and out of the matrix. Tank, I need an exit, becomes the instrument instrumentalizing beam me up mantra of our cyber escapists tanks fingers flit across the keyboard and make it so with a cheery greeting worthy of ma bell i'm tank i'll be your operator the solicit solicitous black man plugs the trigger happy couple into the biggest video game on earth and brings them safely back home to the flesh when cyber playtime is over. Unfortunately, all of this would apply to the new film as well. Uh, Tank's character presents the ideal of what I call the natural machine in the previous chapter, as he beamingly informs the newcomer, Neo. Tank and his big brother, Dozer, are both 100% pure, old-fashioned, homegrown human each born in the real world as a genuine child of Zion. He can thus serve as the perfect mediator between less naturally embodied humans and the machine. He plays the role analyzed by Eldridge Cleaver. It is in this connection that the blacks personifying the body provide the saving link the bridge between man's biology and man's machines. Such a great point. I will stop right there and then keep all of that in mind. And then this is the introduction to the crew, merry band of multiracial helpers uh, for the Matrix Resurrections. And then we'll hear from Dr. Kevorkian again. This is my crew. Our operator. Seek? Sequoia. What? Everybody calls me Seek. Nice to meet you. Dad loved Redwoods. When he escaped the Matrix and found out they no longer existed, I almost killed him. Lucky he met Mom and here I am. This is Lexi, Berg, and Elster. 
Hi. You knew my grandfather, Captain Roland. Roland was your grandfather? He always laughed, joking how he never believed in you. But in private, he said that you freed his mind a second time. I'm not a fanboy out here, but this is kind of a huge moment for me. Berg is our resident neologist. A what? There's a lot of people out there like me who are a little bit obsessed with your life. I would never have recognized your modal if it weren't for him. Whenever you're feeling up for it, I've got like a million questions. Me too. Starting with them. It's okay. Come meet him. This is Sebebe. That's Octocles. That's Luminate. Machines are on our side now? They are Synthians. It's a word they prefer to machines. Your contact with the Synthian city had a huge impact on the world. That's what I meant. What you changed that nobody believed could ever be changed. The meaning of our side. Sebebe and Octocles risked their lives to help get you out. Thank you. But why? Not all seek to control. Just us, not all wish to be free. What is that? An exomorphic particle codex. It's pretty new. It gives programs access to this world. Within limits. Limits are the domain of the limited. Morpheus. Thank you. It was my honor. Wow. <laughs> How does it work? Paramagnetic oscillation. If you want, I can download the codex manual for you. Sure. Downloading used to be fun. That was all manuals and diagnostics. Alrighty, so we'll pause there. Um, wow, so much just even within that uh, little clip. So I guess a few pointers, uh, and then you can give us any other details. But I wanted to start. So you already touched on Sequoia. They call him Seek. His name is Sequoia. Now, just in my view, that's kind of the same tackiness that we've talked about for like a long like driving miss daisy like shirley temple long time like toby kunta long time like your name is actually one thing but we're not going to call you that we're going to call you something else like <sighs> then uh sequoia you talked gifts all the significance tank dozer even though it's not a machine name it's still exactly what you said the natural black male, earthy black male who was born to do this and he has tattoos on his arm of redwood trees and earthy black male Sequoia who's here to help uh, these white people in their defiance uh, get liberated uh, and even his attire like he has so much uh, mechanical equipment like covering an eye like he almost look do you remember this film uh some years back it was about this crazy robot that was like going to hunt and kill a white woman uh and an apocalyptic robot future and like the robot looked like a person he was losing his skin he almost looked like that do you remember the movie i'm talking about yeah terminator you mean that there you go there you go yeah 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 I mean, there, there's so many things that you say, you know, a long time, uh, you know, these are, are familiar, familiar tropes. And, you know, one of the first things that, that, that Seek or Seek Sequoia says, I mean, yeah, you're right. It is very strange. Like it's even, you know, shortening it, but changing the way it's pronounced in some unpredictable way. Why would you 
make sequoia shortened to seek. It's 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 uh, it seems very wrenched. But one of the first things he said, and I think really this is a key to so much of what I thought when seeing this, and also the fact that even the diehard came up again. He says, "Nothing comforts anxiety like a little nostalgia." I, I don't know if you know you found that significant, but this is well. He's they've just announced him as being the best operator, and he's enabling the portals, and he's going to put you know uh, Neo back into this you know uh, construct or play environment uh, where he's going to get to do his you know martial arts thing uh, with the new Morpheus, uh, which is a whole other thing, but uh, a replaying of the Morpheus character who confers on, you know, Neo, you know, that it's okay for, for him to think of himself as a slave be liberated too. But uh, if, if I might, I wanted to read just something about nostalgia because I think it's so important for the way that these representations persist and why people cling to them. Um, I received a book um, by Brene Brown called Atlas of the Heart and she goes through and she analyzes different emotions um but she and she does you know research on what these emotions mean to people uh she says across our research nostalgia emerges a double-edged sword a tool um for both connection and disconnection it can be an imaginary refuge from a world we don't understand and a dog whistle used to resist important growth in families organizations in the broader culture, and to protect power, including white supremacy. So I think some of the the clinging of to these, you know, nostalgic representations, is very much about preserving um, that sense of white supremacy. Again, it's a, that resistance. There's a, a white defiance in still clinging to these things. Nothing comforts anxiety like a little nostalgia. That's that seeks line. Um, but here's what Brene Brown says. What's spoken about nostalgia, I wish things were the way they used to be in the good old days. And then she says, what's not spoken, when people knew their places. What's not spoken, when there was no accountability for the way my behaviors affect other people. What's not spoken, when we ignored other people's pain if it caused us discomfort. What's not spoken, when my authority was absolute and never challenged. So that's the way in which nostalgia goes hand in hand with with what you're observing uh, as as white defiance. Really important that comes up in so many films. Did I cut you there? Sorry. No, I was just going to say again. It's it's Brene Brown, Atlas of the Heart. I wanted to just keep. I wrote that down. I'm familiar with Brene Brown. Many of uh, the white yogis I know are big fans of Brene Brown. That would be another point I would say is big for today. Like the mythology, dangerous lie, I would say, is more accurate that white people are ignorant about racism. Brene Brown is a white female author. uh, And I know she does not, she's not writing for Gusty Renegades. (laughs) She has a lot of uh, white readers, unless I'm mistaken uh, but that theme will come up many many times today in, in many of the films are white people ignorant about racism hmm 
Anywho, uh, before I move to, to Morpheus, because I thought that was really important as well, uh, the team member Elster, she is the granddaughter. So again, naturally in this position, like uh, genetically predisposed to be here to help. We've been doing this, our whole family, helping these white people. Um, but Elster has a uh, British accent. Uh, they have a number of black mm actors and actresses in this film who are not born in the U.S., but they, you know, are given a normal American, standard American accent. Uh, why do you think they have Elster uh, British? Or what's the significance of her having a British accent, even though she's Roland's granddaughter? Huh. I, hmm. I'll confess I'm puzzled. Why, why, why does Elster have, um, British accent is is she the one who is speaking? Who is the one who says this is my crew, or is that is that Bugs that's saying this is my crew? Oh, that's Bugs. Yeah, that's Bugs. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. There's Bugs, and, and which uh, you know, occupies this role of authority, and, and you know some of the other multicultural addressers, Captain. Right. Um, thought there was something very you know, possessive. This is my crew, and the, okay, there's, a, there's clearly a hierarchy. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have theories about sometimes uh, the the British accent conveying a kind of a tone of, of superiority. I think it does in the narrator of Matterley. I really clocked the British accent there. Um, yeah, I'll confess, I'm I'm, I'm struggling. I don't, I don't have an insight to offer, really. Hmm. Interesting. It might be some form of uh, hierarchy. Uh, I'm not just trying to process as well. Uh, I know uh, Sequoia Seek doesn't have uh, an accent uh, and mm -hmm. she's not uh, weighed down with all of the mechanical armaments uh, in the way that Seek is, uh, nor is she kind of um, tethered to all of the machinery. She has a lot more freedom to move about. So that may be some of the consideration, maybe not. Um, I guess while I'm, I'm processing, processing that, what are your, what are your thoughts on Lawrence Fishburne has been uh, removed from this one? Uh, we have a new casting of uh, Morpheus, uh, who is, I believe, non, not born in the U.S., Yaha Abdul-Mateen II. Uh, hope I'm not butchering his name. My apologies. Uh, but what do you make of how he's recast and then his character in this one? Yeah. Uh, you know, he's, um, he's, it, it, what seems to be, you know, crucially different uh, in this one, it's, it's like Morpheus, but more so is that this Morpheus as far as I can figure out, turns out to be Neo, uh, you know, the Keanu Reeves' creation. Uh, like, you know, this new Morpheus says things, it's, my best guess is that you wrote me as an algorithmic reflection of the two forces that helped you become you, uh, and starting with Morpheus and Agent Smith. So, you know, in, in the first Matrix, um, you have Lawrence Fishburne, who plays the, the crucial role of uh, introducing um, uh, Neo to the real world again and 
letting him know that quote you are a slave so that he can so that the what not so the white character can claim that and then claim liberation um here you know uh the new morpheus similarly trains up uh neo but it's it's a character that this neo has written he's sort of um almost almost if you think about it you know reveals the ideology of the first one um that the first Lawrence Fishburne character is supposedly this, you know, real authentic black person who is freeing um, the white person. But perhaps a more honest, you know, accounting of that is that this particular version of a black man who frees the white person is a fantasy and figment of that white man's imagination. Um, that's, that's what he is here. Uh, the new Morpheus says things they taught you to believe um, that their world was all you deserve, but I you know you remember what's real. And he says, I know what you need. And um, when they're sparring together, it's at exa- this exact moment um, that, you know, they've been sparring and Neo's been slow up to this point. At this point, he stops letting the new Morpheus, you know, hit him and really starts to fight back. So then he, now the new Morpheus again exists as a kind of a, a, a punching bag trainer um, for Neo to grow strong again. Um, but anyhow, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by that, that idea that this film, in a sense, uh, reveals that that role is something that Neo has constructed, uh, that he has a need for this, uh, Morpheus character to exist in order to come and save him and, and liberate him. That is important uh, that Morpheus in this fourth installment of the Matrix is, uh, yeah, the creation of Neo. Neo has a need for a black male to function uh, as the helper uh, to get his mojo back. Uh, as it, And even having black people rooting on, you have like a fist bump uh, with Sequoia and I think it's Luminate, one of the sentients, uh, where they're like, oh yeah, he's getting his mojo back and yeah, and they're cheering him on. Um, which is, you need a, a chorus of non-white people to cheer. That does kind of recur <laughs> in some of the films today. Like, oh no. Woo. Keep that in mind as we uh, move through some of the films. Like, wow. Um, I guess also uh, you talked about in some of the earlier installments uh, that this film, the Matrix franchise, kind of presents itself as uh, counterculture and revolutionary and, you know, down with the establishment uh, out of that whole kind of punk uh, culture. And you talk about how it starts even with the beginnings of the movies, how they have kind of defaced the Warner Brothers logo. They've made that a part of the Matrix and they've got it all uh, in the green uh, coating uh, of the franchise. And then in the fourth installment this time around, they just come out in their flagrant, like within the context of the movie and saying, oh man, Warner Brothers is making us do a sequel to the game. They're just, you know, they're sticking it to us again. In the middle of this, uh, in my view, I mean, hey, I didn't even think this was, you know, 
any sort of great cinema, certainly reading more important than watching television, get Brene's Brown, Brene Brown's book and check that out. But uh, what do you make of that being inserted within the middle of the film and then they get a, a jab in uh, at Warner Brothers about there being a sequel to all this? Yeah, no, I, I think it, it does. I'd forgotten how much it was really that was already being done in, in the first one. So thank you for reminding me of that. But it, it really this movie, Matrix Resurrections, uh, really doubles down on these ironic self-references and these jabs at, at corporate uh, media. Um, I'll just, I'll, I want to borrow an insight that I, there's a website called Honest Trailers that kind of does mock trailers uh, for movies. But one summary that they had of, of The Matrix Resurrection with all of these ironic self-references like, you know, our parent company, Warner Brothers, I think it's interesting. It says, it's like they invented bullet time for dodging criticism. Um, you know, what I take it to mean like that, that they want to present the idea that, you know, whatever think, thing that you think you're criticizing, they already are aware of it. They've already got the drop on it. They're already criticizing it um, themselves. Um, I think that's another theme for, for a couple of, couple of the films uh, today. Um, that, you know, creating these layers of ironic frames um, is a way of, of potentially distancing yourself from anything that could be could be criticized. Like, we've, we've already thought, like, even that thing about it being familiar, they're making fun of the fact that it's familiar. But they're still, at the same time, delivering an entertainment that is intensely familiar and repeating those tropes. So it, I don't think it's really a way out of that critique. That is fat. Let me let me get in. Let's make sure I don't want to get too bogged down on any of the films. Hopefully, uh, let me see one more point that I thought was important, uh, and it kind of relates into all of this. I, I felt like I think we talked before, like lots of money. There's going to be a lot of recycling. They just redid another scream. I don't think we've talked about any of the films in that franchise, but that was like a teen slasher film series from the '90s. And it's right, really, same time period as The Matrix, just a couple of years before. And that, too, just within days, 25 years, bambo. Now we have a new screen where most of the main cast members are now in their 50s. And this started as a teen, which is still the way it's marketed, a teen slasher uh, flick. I think there are going to be tons of these sort of remakes. That nostalgia, I think a lot of that is rooted in uh, what they call the uh, graying. Uh, of the white population in this part of the world and all the concern about uh, either the percentage of the white population being reduced and that pushing a lot of this nostalgia for old times when the demographics were different, white rule was more secure, we didn't have some of the concerns that we do now. Uh, I think that's pushing a great deal. I mean, the money certainly, but I think that's also pushing a huge part of these let's do another screen let's do another matrix and probably let's do another term let's do another die hard let's do another rambo uh do you does that make any sense do you think that might be motivating what's happening here no i i, I think so yeah i mean I, again I, I can't speak to the specifics of, of screen but yes it's um it's a kind of golden age thinking um, you know, uh, again, made, made most explicit in that 
uh, you know, make America great again uh, kind of uh, sloganeering. Making making the same things over again and presuming that things were uh, better in the past in a, in a way that they in fact never were, but in fact sometimes wanting some of the most negative things from the past to be replicated. Mm. Something to think about as we uh, move forward. If folks have any uh, questions, anything that was left out uh, from matrix resurrections uh let us know didn't think it was spectacular in fact i wasn't surprised at all like lots of money and we just talked about that kind of yearning for a time gone by uh 25 years can't believe it's been that much time since the first one came out uh all right i'll switch up we'll get to our second i'm just going in chronological order here uh die hard so that would be Next up in order out of the three that we have left, Die Hard coming out in 1988. Let me think. Uh, I, hmm, hmm. I will read. I was going to see who's going to do the summary, but I will go to the text uh, color monitors, uh, Dr. Kevorkian's work and see what he has to say about Die Hard. So this is on page 15 uh, of the text. Uh, He writes about the classic Die Hard. Uh, In fact, I'm going to start one paragraph up just to give a little bit more. The current veneer to be inspected is an aggressively technological one. The paradigm I have in mind is less the antic Stepan fetch it than the quiet Sam of Casablanca Mr. Fuller mentions that film all the time one may imagine a genealogy for neo minstrelsy that begins with scenes like Rick Humphrey Bogart telling Sam Dooley Wilson to play it on the piano that leads up to Dr. Daniels Dustin Hoffman of outbreak asking major salt cuba gooding jr to display a file on the computer screen as time goes by in the big white house of the cinema american the scene remains strangely familiar the white hero issues a request and a black man obligingly puts his hands on the keyboard I take 1988's Die Hard as signaling a changing of the guard or at least the guard's uniform for neo-minstrelsy from entertainer to electronic expert. Early in the film, we meet a traditional black character, the youthful Argyle Devra White, a chauffeur and connoisseur of rap music who pumps up the tunes while driving John McClane, Bruce Willis, to the fateful Skyrise office building where McClane will find himself battling a ruthless band of international terrorists. Among those terrorists is a single black character, the team's designated computer expert, Theo. Clarence Gilliard Jr. 
Theo is also the only major character in the movie who does not appear in some form in the 1979 novel upon which Die Hard is based. Theo's preppy style and the computer code cracking subplot he dutifully pursues are the most notable whole cloth fabrications introduced for the movie audience of the late 1980s. The script also extends Argyle's chauffeur role in a somewhat forced manner, wrenched I think is the word he used before. In the novel, the driver simply drops off the protagonist and heads home for a quiet Christmas Eve. In the movie, he offers to wait around for McLean and we are periodically treated to shots of Argyle in the basement garage happily listening to the radio while mayhem proceeds unabated 30 odd floors above him. I'll pause there although he gives a little bit more detail. Um, I have it's so many clips I almost could just roll right through the clips here and uh, get through let me in fact let me uh, let me play one clip and then if you have any other thoughts that you want to give in the overview of the film or you can just respond right to the clip this is at the very beginning of the film like first five minutes we already heard uh, John McClane and Argyle in the vehicle that was in an introduction they're listening to run DMC you're going to go see your wife man you sure are fast Argyle which can also have a sexual connotation meaning someone is fast have you heard Dr. Kevorkian being a professor of English have you heard that connotation or that usage of the word fast to mean someone might be uh, sexually aggressive yeah, I mean, I'm thinking uh, you know, fast times at Ridgemont High, you know, with a, a cultural reference point there. Um, uh, often, I'd say maybe more often referring to women than to men, but then that's also significant if that then that that kind of usage or gender connotation is being applied to a non-white person. Mm. English professor words are important. I think all of that is relevant because I was thinking the same thing. I think there's a gender component to fast, meaning that uh, generally I have oh, I, that's one usage of the word that I've heard fast, but it is she's fast is often the way I've heard it applied to a female, especially a younger uh, female, which would be interesting if that's how we're maybe double entendre. Maybe there are double meanings in terms of why Argyle is fast. Folks can think about that. We heard that already while we're doing the, the names and, and quick analysis uh, before I get to my sound clip with Theo, do you have any thoughts uh, now disgraced Bill Cosby? He had a hit television show that had already been out for a number of years by the time Die Hard was released in the summer of 1988 Cosby the Cosby show hit character Malcolm Jamal Warner Theo do you think they might have deliberately put Theo on this guy to kind of infantilize him and he's already get a little bit of comfort since the name Theo with a black child in America's favorite family at the time do you think that might have been a deliberate choice of a name or influence that I'll say it that way. I think, I think think? It's, sorry, sorry. I think it's, I think it's a great point, and 
you know, it's either it's deliberate or I think unconsciously influenced by it because, you know, as you say, uh, I said at the top, it's, I mean, it's so important that, you know, die hard is something that can just be dropped into a conversation uh, even today and people assume that everyone knows what they're talking about. I mean, I think at that time the, the Cosby show was completely pervasive. So people would associate Theo with that, um, you know, infantilizing young man image. Um, I think that is, I think that is part. I had never, I had not consciously thought of that, but I think it's a great connection. Hmm. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm going to try and see if we can just run the clips because they are staggering. And so much of this I hadn't even thought of until it had been a while since I had reread the whole book. So I had to go back. I'd, like I said, I'd forgotten that Die Hard was in color monitors. And then I had to go back and rewatch it. Like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. Uh, so clip number one, uh, this is uh, Mr. McLean going into the building where all of the mayhem will ensue and he's trying to find his wife I messed this clip up I tried to do it so many times and I was cutting it too fast and leaving out important little tidbits I tried to be military precise with the clips because every little nugget and segment counts for something so this is Mr. McLean trying to find his wife what does this have to do with color monitors let's see hi good evening I'm here to see Holly McLean. Just type it in there. Cute toy. Yeah, you have to take a leak. It'll even help you find your zipper. The only ones left in the building. Take the express elevator. Get off where you hear the noise. Thanks. Kept cutting out jingle bells. I had to, to re-edit and re-edit. Every time we have Dr. Martin Kavorkian on the program, it is a lot of work. It is no easy task to have all of these clips organized and ready to roll. Anywho, uh, so that is the very beginning of the movie. In Color Monitors, Dr. Kavorkian says it seems one of the enduring characteristics of John McClane throughout this series is, I am not with all this technology fax machines and computers and all the rest of it. Ugh, get it out of here. I, I'm, I'm just, I can't do all that. I'm ready to blow up some folks. I'm ready to, you know, do some damage. Where's my gun at? Go bomb something. Right at the beginning of the film, he is hopping mad. Christ. Mad, I gotta hop on this computer. Then I gotta hop on the express elevator, not just the regular elevator. And my white wife has dropped my name. Ugh. I am a disgusted white man. Is that some of the, the his man? This technology is, is already letting me know I'm going to have a bad day right at the very beginning where he's got to find his wife on the computer. I think that's that's brilliant. Yes, I think that he is. He's playing the disgusted white man. And I'm uh, thinking again, you know, I just spoke about how there's a nostalgia for Die Hard, right? What that nostalgia means. But it's 
it's doubling down. It's a nostalgia about a film that is itself about nostalgia, right? It, that McLean is a throwback. He is nostalgic for a time before these annoying beeps of the computer, before these things that are, are dragging him down. Um, yes, there's a real impatience to him um, and makes him a model of that kind of white defiance for which people would therefore, uh, white audience would be nostalgic. Oh, that's two excellent points. Number one, of course, Die Hard would be popular right now. I mean, talk about a poster child for white defiance. Like he he's an enforcement officer now. I mean, think about that. This is a police mm-hmm. officer who brags, NYPD no less. It's not even his jurisdiction who brags when he's confronted with one of the first white terrorists and say, hey, you're a police officer. You got to follow the rules. I'm a white man. I don't follow the rules. <laughs> he says, my, my captain keeps mm-hmm. telling me that. Ah, do what I want. <laughs> That's one. But then the nostalgia I already played the sound clip. I said some of these clips, I just, I'm getting them in here because I can't play everything and you know, just put it in the introduction. Uh, but it was not wasting time. That scene, iconic, yippee ki yay. Who is he talking? He's John Wayne. They're just right now talking about, man, maybe we should take John Wayne's name off the air for it. They didn't, but they did give discussion uh, in the LA Times and many other outlets. Like, man, he talked openly about his dedication to white supremacy. Like, maybe his name shouldn't be on the airport. Maybe that's not inclusive. At least we pretend that's what we're about in California and elsewhere. Just talking about that right now. They didn't, as I said, it's still John Wayne Airport, but, you know, but he right there in the film. John Wayne. Yeah. Good old days. We didn't have all these crazy computers. And uh, I'm going to get many opportunities so I can ask it now or I can wait till later. We get to the genital level like really quick. Uh, He doesn't. I mean, he could have said a lot of things to talk about how efficient and helpful this computer is. He says, if you need to go to the bathroom, it will help you find your zipper. What do you make of it getting to the genital level so quickly? This is first five minutes of the movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, it's about this technology then encroaching on his, his masculinity or somehow being in control of or knowledgeable of his masculinity. Uh, you know, yet another thing that, that he's going to resist. Um, you know, it's interesting you said that, you know, these are the things that we, you know, we care about in, in California and the West Coast. Um, he's also someone who has uh, kind of a disgust, John McClain does, has a kind of a disgust with, I can't remember, he gets to the airport and he sees this woman, in, you know, showing a public display of affection. And he says something like, oh, Los Angeles or, oh, California. Uh, and you can tell that he's like not on board with the whole cultural program uh, of the West Coast. Uh, but again, we miss this is a guy that would very much resent uh, someone having to tell him, you know, where to find his, his zipper. Um, he's someone who wants to project that he is in control and in command of his masculinity, his sexuality, all of that. Context of white supremacy, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, grandsister. I'm sure she would say a lot about that scene. Uh, getting to the next clip, and again, so now we're only about 10 minutes into 
the film. Uh, so at this point, the terrorists are about to take over uh, Nakatomi Plaza. Uh, we are, I think one of the first terrorists that we see is going to be Theo, maybe connected to the Cosby show, maybe not. This is another clip like, wow, military precision with the cuts. Previously, I, they say this is a Christmas movie. Bruce Willis, after all that person at no computer and help me with my zipper, whistling jingle bells. This time around, so we hear Theo and the rest of the terrorists, they're going in to take over the building. We'll get this one and hear what uh, Dr. Kevorkian has to say. Listen all the way to the end. So Kareem rebounds, right? Feeds Worthy on the break, over to AC, to Magic, then back to Worthy, right? <laughs> Two points. We're in. So we have Theo, they... They go in. What do you what do you make the the ruse to kind of fool the security guard before they, you know, summarily execute him and take over the computer, which and I mean, Theo, he immediately begins his role as color monitor like he does not stop, does not pass go, does not collect two hundred dollars. It is let me sit at this keyboard and begin doing my job. This is what you brought me here for. Black computer monitor. Boom, 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 boom. But what do you make of the ruse to fool the security guard to have the black male out front talking about basketball? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, uh, something that, uh, what's the book? Um, you know, Walter Mosley uh, uh, talks about uh, the, am I quizzing Walter Mosley? I'm going to get who, who said this. Um, but I'm actually just thinking of the very, very end of the book about the different spaces in which, you know, white people, uh, no, this is Ishmael Reed. I'm very sorry. Um, so there's a history, uh, of blacks, uh, in the United States with a history of confinement. This is significant that the places that most Americans were comfortable with black male presence were all enclosures, basketball courts, football fields, and jails. Um, so, I mean, this is evoking a an image, black men talking about an image of black men with which white America is comfortable. Um, uh, in, in this case, you know, Showtime, Magic, Passing to Worthy, um, uh, presents, uh, being presenting themselves as fans of that game uh, presents them as initially non-threatening and sets would set the guard, security guard, at ease. One of the things that I noticed with that scene, this is again going back and rewatching after I said, wow, Dr. Kevorkian had a lot to say about Die Hard. How did I forget? It's like, oh, it's been 13 years. So I'm going back. I reread. I go back to rewatch. I watch that scene. So the whole basketball thing, exactly as you said, where are we comfortable with the Negro? Oh, yes. Sports. Yes. Yes. Uh, and this is the 80s. So the magic and Kareem, that era of the Lakers. Uh, 
then with that scene, as I said, he aggressively, he hops down, gets on the keyboard, begins doing the security for the building, closing the gates and all the rest of it. But the thing that stuck out to me immediately, he's humming Christmas music. That's one Christmas movie. Uh, but he's got glasses on and you write about that. I'll share some of that later as we get to later in the film, but he's got glasses on and the glare from the computer screen is so intense in reflecting off of his glasses. And this happens repeatedly color monitors, as you wrote uh, throughout the film, as you're seeing him, he's next to the computer. So the glare is shining off his glasses, glare off his glasses. And it, it immediately, the first time I saw it after I looked back at your book, I said, wow, this visually has the very same look as what was that? dude they had a robot and he wore glasses and he went and he was hunting the white woman apocalyptic future they were going to kill all the people do you remember that movie i I, i'm afraid that i do i'm afraid i do it's it's the terminator again but uh, uh, what you mentioned about glasses and goggles i'm sorry i'll backtrack just a second matrix resurrections again it's both seek uh, and Hanno that are shown with goggles or something over their eye. Uh, other characters do not have that. So, something I think is true that I noticed. Mm. Just something, uh, the non-humanness uh, of mm-hmm. black characters. Uh, none of the other terrorists have glasses. You can see their face. Uh, just something about that if the eyes are the window to the soul when that reflection comes up consistently maybe this is some kind of soulless creature uh that we're looking at here old theo and he's at the computer all the time he again he now this is not bluetooth this is 1988 so he's got some sort of like earpiece contraption again None of the other characters seem to have this. They have walkie talkies or whatever other device that they can put down. Uh, He has some sort of technology that seems to be an intimate, a part of his being permanently non-human. Let's see. The so many clips. I can just run the clips. I'll just run the clips since we're doing glasses. This is one a listener pointed out long time ago. Super short clip to my question. Who's driving this car? Stevie Wonder? So this is when Sergeant Al Powell is about to enter the building and we're about to get another uh, black helper for John McClane. But that Stevie Wonder comment. I think it was a good five or six years ago. We had a listener and they said, you know, I've heard that. I've heard that lots of times. People say, oh, man, who's driving? Is this Stevie Wonder? Oh, my goodness. Did you go to the same driving class as Stevie Wonder? That that joker. Sometimes they'll say um, Ray Charles, but he's passed away. So I don't hear that one as frequently. But I did hear that one used to. Uh, And they said, it seems like there could be a racist element to that. Like there have to be white people who are blind on the planet why is it only stevie wonder that we can break up or we gotta make some sort of reference about someone not seeing correctly or you missed something or you're not paying attention uh what do you make of the and we are going to hear some stevie wonder tunes later on in the in the program but what do you make of that line uh who's driving this car stevie wonder yeah uh i mean i i one thing i think that it goes to is again that traditional uh chauffeur role 
right? So the, the point being that if it is the black man's role to drive, right, it's going to be a deficit to have that particular disability. It's, so to speak, necessary for the role of a certain kind of exploiter or instrumentalized blackness, in this case, the driving role, possibly also necessary for, you know, the computer role. There are probably ways around that. But um, I think it goes to a black example of Stevie Wonder because it's talking about wanting uh, the black man to be doing the driving. It's not imagining uh, in this particular instance, I think, right, is it, uh, here he's making the comment remark about, uh, as you say, Sergeant Al Powell, but you know, he could be making the remark about Argyle as well. Uh, it's who is imagined to be doing the work for you and then making a comparison to a body that has a deficit for that job. Wow. Fascinating analysis, Dr. Martin Kevorkian. Even Stevie Wonder would still apply for color monitors. That's Sam, uh, unfortunately. But uh, And his music is played in Die Hard, importantly so, uh, in a few short scenes. Um, let's see. The... I really can just run. The, I promise I didn't clip the whole movie. I'm just trying to hit the important nuggets. I would, in fact, even encourage listeners, some of these tropes, this might be a part of that nostalgia when people enjoy viewing this film so much. Maybe they, maybe you have a substantial segment, a uh, segment of white movie watchers who enjoy seeing these types of roles for black people and white people, the white defiance and all. Uh, let's see. Uh, next clip. So, uh, my goodness, Stevie Wonder, Stevie Wonder, military precision. So this is, uh, we will hear Argyle. This is one of the scenes that you talk about in the book and why he's a part of this terrorist team. And then this will transition beautifully. This is one of the key moments when I went back and watched this and was like, oh, my God, this film is 30 years old, but we have to talk about this. This is one of the pivotal scenes, I would say, in the whole movie and maybe even again gets to what do racists white supremacists what would they appreciate about a film like this and particularly how it portrays black people this is argyle why is he a part of the team and we'll all excuse me this is theo why theo is a part of the white terrorist team in die hard and then what is argyle up to while all this is going on argyle is john mcclain's driver context of white supremacy Now, you can break the code. You didn't bring me along for my charming personality. Argyle, tell me you heard the shots. You're calling the police right now. Of course I'm still coming by later. Sweetheart, have I ever lied to you? My boss? on my way to Vegas. Woo. Oh my goodness. Cracking up laughing. One of the most important scenes of the movie. Um, let me see. You, you wrote about the first portion uh, with Theo. You didn't bring me along 
for my charming personality. Any you want to share with our listeners anything else that you added from the book about that scene or that portion of it right there? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I, I say, you know, that exactly names the whole racist logic here, that he is not being brought along for his human element. He's being brought along as his tool, as a tool. And this is something that, you know, makes Tyhard very influential because I think other, you know, uh, technologized black characters, you know, are imitating that role or fitting that same thing. So you didn't bring me along for my charming personality. One thing I will say uh, that I think that I missed, you know, in the book and I didn't comment on is how much Clarence Gilliard Jr.'s performance makes that line pop. There's a kind of an irony here in that actually, you know, he is, he himself in that moment, the way he says it to me is drooping with a kind of irony that uh, is, is critical of, of the way that he's being, like, you, you didn't bring me, he's, he's, it's not quite in the, uh, to the extent of a, you know, movie you brought to my attention, Solo, where the, the technologized black man really names his own exploitation very explicitly, but this is coming close to ex- exposing the logic and making visible and I guess what I want to say, the short version of what I missed is Theo says you didn't bring me along for my charming personality, but he himself is actually playing the character with a ton of personality. He's performing with more personality than the other terrorists. So there's a way in which he is, the performance goes outside of the role that the, the, the white you know, overseers have put him in. Fascinating. Fascinating. I do get the hint of irony uh, in his response. Uh, he's getting that for sure, calling attention to, to what's happening here to some degree. A oh, solo. It's been so long since I've seen that one. The late Melvin Van Peebles, his son, Mario Van Peebles, uh, the star of that one. Um, the second portion of that clip, the moment I saw that it became so crazy, and I'd seen this movie like everybody. We've also that's why we can mention it. Everybody's seen this movie. It's always on, especially during Christmas. That scene with Argyle, they go and you get a number of these type of scenes in the film, but they go, boom. What's Theo up to? Oh, you didn't bring it on. Boom, boom. We're trying to break in. Man, hope Argyle is going to be of some help. Argyle is listening to Stevie Wonder and on the phone talking about how he has fooled his boss. Man, he thinks I'm in Vegas. Like, we're going to do whatever. This reminded me, man, the number of times that we've had Dr. Martin Kevorkian on the program talking about tropes of black people, the number of times that I get to be potty mouth and quote Earl Butts, former secretary, secretary of agriculture who was fired during the Nixon administration. Why was he fired? He said he told the reporter, I'm not worried about these black people. You know what they want. And the reporter says, no, I don't, I don't know what they want. What do they want? Earl Butts, he said, all they want, loose shoes, tight pussy, and a warm place to shit. That moment with Argyle, once I looked at the book and I went back and looked, I said, oh, there's Earl Butts again. In the midst of terrorist mayhem, 
I'm trying. I'm I'm lying about work. I have no idea what's happening. I'm intoxicated listening to Stevie Wonder and trying to hook up for some sexual intercourse. Is this Earl Butts again, Dr. Kevorkian? It definitely came to mind. I mean, you're the one who instructed me on that a while ago when we talked about uh, the purge. But yes, and you know the way that you also you know translated that is the I, the notion in the white imagination that the only thing black people are serious about is sex, right? And that they're not serious about other things. Um, here, Argyle is being treated as this character who doesn't have it. Care in the world is not paying attention. Um, you know, I think you're, you're, the Stevie Wonder uh, reference is important in that regard that, you know, somehow one of his, in this case, he's not listening. It's not that he's not looking, it's he's not looking, but he sort of has cut himself off from the sense that, um, John McClain wants him to have to tell me you heard the shots. Like it's a command. Tell me you heard the shots, uh, but he can't because he's being distracted by uh, the only things that he is serious about. Mm, 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 mm. Uh, the second I said military precision. So the music and you talk about the use of music in this film, they got lots of Christmas music and then they have Argyle playing all the uh, rap music. He's playing Run DMC Christmas music at the beginning of it. And then at this moment, he is listening to Stevie Wonder. That's what's playing in the background. And the specific Stevie Wonder song that he's listening to is Skeletons. Drill down even further. So what are the lyrics to the great Stevie Wonder, who's mentioned by name uh, by this point in the film? What are the lyrics to Skeleton? They are skeletons in your closet, itching to come outside, messing with your conscience in a way your face can't hide. Oh, things are getting real funky down at the old corral, and it's not the skunks that are stinking, it's the stinking lies you tell. What did your mama tell you about lies? She said it wasn't polite to tell a white one. What did your daddy tell you about lies? He said one white one turns into a black one. That part of the song does actually play in the movie you will have to listen closely but you will hear the last line about white lies and black lies in Argyle's limo any thoughts about Argyle listening to this specific Stevie Wonder song skeletons while he's talking about his lies to his boss to get off from work and being totally oblivious to the white mayhem above wow you know, I mean, you know, I suppose, you know, there's probably a, a a larger truth, you know, that is revealed about the movie that, you know, you, you know, it's it's messing with your conscience and uh, there are things that are itching to come outside. You know, I think, uh, you know, that line where Theo says, you didn't bring me along for my charming personality is almost like the conscience of the, you know, filmmaker coming out uh, a little bit. But what what I think the way the, Stevie Wonder song is is being used here. It's being used potentially to discipline um, 
and criticize Theo. Right? Um, so it's it's enlisting in this case, you know, a, a black voice to criticize uh, this black character's uh, behavior. As, as you pointed out, he's lying to his boss, and then the song is saying, you know, your your lies will be will be found out. I agree totally. Uh, using Stevie Wonder, no less, to kind of admonish uh, poor uh, Argyle, but whoa, the, talk about the simple white lies turn into black ones. Wow. Wow. I'll have to listen to that song a little differently now. Certainly watch that film way differently. Uh, so just going right through the sound clip. So. Uh, break the code skeletons in the closet uh, so now we get our other helper this is Sergeant Al Powell now again you can do the contrast the cuts were very deliberate uh, with the sound clips so you get to hear what's happening with John McClain and then our introduction to Sergeant Al Powell and talk about comfort. I guess this will be the word I'll have folks think about as they, as we go into this clip, Dr. Kevorkian thinking maybe share on the other side, uh, the black eunuch. That is a very popular character throughout the history of white supremacy, racism, uh, black male character. He's not connected to anybody, no family, totally isolated, not sexual, not attracted to any females, no love interest. He's basically just here to serve white people. Lots of different variations of that. Driving Miss Daisy. Uh, collateral was mentioned. It's close to that, but you do eventually meet where it breaks away from that event later on. But there are lots of different ways mm -hmm. that this character uh, plays out in films. <sighs> Sergeant Al Powell, how was he introduced to us in Die Hard? Let's hear. Hey John. John McClain, you still with us? Yeah. But all things being equal, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. Chalk up two more bad guys. Well, the boys down here will be glad to hear that. You know we got a pool going on you. What kind of odds am I getting? You don't want to know. Put me down for 20. I'm good for it. <laughs> hey, pal. You got flat feet? What the hell are you talking about, man? Something had to get you off the street. What's the matter? You don't think jockeying papers across a desk is a noble effort for a cop? No. I had an accident. The way you drive, I can see why. What'd you do? Run over your cab and flip the car. I shot a kid. 13 years old. Oh, it was dark. I couldn't see him. He had a ray gun look real enough. You know, when you're a rookie, they can teach you everything about being a cop except how to live with a mistake. Anyway, I just couldn't bring myself to draw my gun on anybody again. Sorry, man. Hey, man, how could you know? I feel like shit anyway. 
Well, then this won't matter. The LAPD is not calling the shots down here anymore. That's... You got it. All right, those are the city engineers. Wait. They're going into the street circuits. And those guys in the suits, I don't know who they are. That's the FBI. They're ordering the others to cut the building's power. Regular as clockwork. Context of white supremacy. Dr. Kevorkian writes about how uh, Theo is inept. He can only do so much, and then he's totally powerless. It's out of his hands, and we will need uh, some other power, a miracle, divine intervention to you know take things the rest of the way. Uh, but with this segment, I started one. Make sure I, I correct myself. Sydney Portier passed on January sixth, not the eighth. Strive for accuracy. Uh, but this is uh, the segment a little bit later after we've actually been introduced to Sergeant Al Powell. We'll hear that it'll be a little bit out of order, but I'm connecting two portions uh, in the movie that are not quite directly together, but that's coming right up. So this was a little bit later uh, in the film after John McClane and Sergeant Al Powell have been together. Sergeant Al Powell, the color monitors, he's not though not at a computer monitor. He's basically tethered to his CB, which is kind of the older version, same technology to the duration of the film, talking to, or supporting, encouraging, uh, spiriting on uh, John McClane, the white man. Uh, but in this segment, Sergeant Al Powell explains, this is why I'm at my desk. I'm not out and about. I'm not out being wild and killing folks and shooting up everything like you are. I mentioned Black Eunuch before that segment aired. Does that clip relate to this Black Eunuch character to you, in your view? It, well, it speaks to his, uh, you know, kind of very vulnerable confession of powerlessness. You know, why, as you say, he's not, he's, why he's not the action hero, um, why he's in the support role, why he is. He's, uh, I think that's really insightful. So he's tethered to the the CB radio as another form of of technology. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, he's someone who is is defined in this very quickly by the story by a mistake that he made. So it portrays him as someone who was not was not competent to be a cop. Um, and it was you know first sort of played comically, like well you can't drive very well, and now you know very gravely that. Um, you know, he killed someone. Um, you know, it doesn't say, you know, who the kid was, uh, but he says it was dark. I couldn't see him. Reagan, you know, look real. Um, you know, someone who was, was not exercising care uh, with, his, with his gun. And so now, you know, he's, he's uh, uh, someone who doesn't, uh, isn't in a position to be using a gun. Uh, so I think that is, you know, of kind of a metaphorical eunuch move to you know, have someone, you know, have their gun taken away from them. Important. Uh, you talked about the child not mentioned, uh, whoever this was that was killed. Incidentally, this movie came out in 1988. So this is in the middle of when they would say the LAPD was really bad with regards to racism, white supremacy. Not that I would say things have changed too much uh, in the time period, but uh, so this is like 
three years before the beating of Rodney King, which will come up in a later film. Uh, but about three years before that, it's fascinating that they would have a black male officer be the face of a killing of a child who I would submit following logic would have to be black non-white minimum because there's no way a black officer would be allowed to stay on the force if you shot and killed a white child I could not imagine that universe at all plus when you just said the child is not mentioned like we don't see a, a flashback to who this was or anything like that no name given or anything it reminded me of one of the great lines from Pulp Fiction no one who will be missed he had a ray gun eh not exercising responsibility. The parents should have been there. Irresponsible parents like, uh, yeah, but just following the logic and the logic of who gets killed by LAPD or police officers in the U.S. in general. Uh, but the eunuch, I think, totally. And I think white people would register because white people would even from that point remember when they didn't even allow black officers to carry a gun. Uh, some of the black men, Huey P. Newton talked about that. His dad being a police officer couldn't arrest white people and all the rest of it. Uh, I also, I carried that clip a little bit beyond. So he gives the explanation. Uh, shot a kid, blah, blah, blah. And then we hear Theo and typing at the computer. Done all I can. It's up to you all now. Miracle, white God, somebody take it from here. And that's another scene where the light is bouncing off his glances. A la Terminator, non-human. Uh, do is this the last? So this is the oh no, it's not quite, almost there. I said I was so stunned how I had so many clips from this crazy movie from so long ago. Uh, so the Twinkies comes up. Uh, students of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, uh, phallic representation, right? Uh, comes up twice. Uh, it comes up with the introduction to Sergeant Al Powell, and then it pops up again later on in the film I think this is a part of the emasculation of Al Powell uh, and I think it represents something else as well but so I'm going to put these two together even though they happen at separate times in the film but this is bound together Sergeant Al Powell black male who is obese in the film we talked about that a number of times as well having a fat that's kind of a part of the nostalgia of white supremacy racism as well having a black person who is obese uh, at, a, at an unhealthy body weight black males and black females uh, so we hear the two clips together Sergeant Al Powell and Twinkies they have already killed one hostage they are fortifying their positions while you're jerking me off on the radio now send the police sir back I've already ASAP. told you this is a reserve channel if this is an emergency call dial 911 on your telephone otherwise I'll have to report this as an FCC violation Fine. report me come the fuck down here and arrest me just send the police now See if there's a black and white that can do a drive-by. Thought you guys just ate donuts. <laughs> They're for my wife. Yeah. She's pregnant. Yeah. Bag it. Big time. Thanks. 
This is 8 Lincoln 30, come on in, over. Investigate a code 2 at Nakatomi Plaza, Century City. 8 Lincoln 30 to dispatch. I'm on my way. Roy, Roy, are you all right? Just trying to fire down a thousand-year-old Twinkie. What do they put in these things anyway? Sugar-enriched flour, partially hydrogenated vegetable oil, polysorbate 60, and yellow dye number five. Just everything a growing boy needs. How many kids you got, Al? Well, as a matter of fact, my wife is working on our first. How about you, cowboy? You got any kids back on your ranch? Yeah. Two. Sure hope I can see him swinging on a jungle gym with Al Jr. someday. <laughs> well, now that's a date. But uh, you're gonna have to bring the ice cream. Touching, cowboy, touching. Or should I call you... Mr. McLean. Mr. Officer John McLean of the New York Police Department. Is a police officer, John McClain. What uh, we so we heard those two segments together again. Contrast in my view. So we had one time with Argyle. Uh, he's down listening to skeletons in the garage, uh, totally ignorant about all this and scamming his boss, while Bruce Willis is risking life and limb to save these white hostages. Uh, this time around. Literally, same thing. He's about to fall off the roof. He's being shot at. The office, the 911 dispatch person is being flippant. Uh, and then we cut to that, and Sergeant Al Powell is buying Twinkies. Not just one Twinkie, buying like a dozen Twinkies and ho hos and donuts and other items that'll kill you. Uh, and then we fast forward, and the white uh, attendant is also being flippant. Like, when. Therefore, you're pregnant. Why? Really? Uh huh. Right on, tubby guy. Mm-hmm. So we fast forward later into the film. Bruce Willis, in all of this mayhem, has apparently found a Twinkie that's stale, and you know he speaks up, and then they go into all the D. He knows all. Just, I guess I'll stop there. He's not confident about firing his firearm, but he knows every ingredient of a Twinkie. What do you make of these scenes where Twinkies play a prominent, prominent role in the film, Dr. Kevorkian? Yeah. Uh, first of all, yes, the, the skepticism that he was met with in the first scene was very striking. Uh, you know, like, sure, they're for your wife. Uh, and I took that skepticism to be, you know, have two different depths to it. Like, A, it's just an excuse for you to you know, satisfy your craving for food, which is, you know, that's your real craving. And maybe even skepticism as to whether he even has a wife, right? Like for my, your pregnant wife, well, no, it's for, for, for you. Uh, uh, and whether or not there's a wife, but maybe there was even, even isn't one that there's such a kind of a, uh, a skeptical, sharp, flippant reply from the white tenant, as you say. Um, oh, I've lost my thought on this second part but um oh the that yeah it's just that it's it's striking as you say like he, he knows all of these details uh the sergeant al paul reginald bell johnson character knows all these details 
uh, about the Twinkie. A, it shows that he isn't absolutely focused on that kind of junk food. That's where his expertise lies. But also, I think more generally, um, plays to his role as supplier of information. Again, he's on the other end of the CB. That's what he's tethered to. It's, again, almost like an early version of, like, talking to some search function on a computer that can just give you this information. Uh, John McClain is curious, and there's someone who is has this kind of machine-like ability to call up these details. Like, seek, right, you know. Very similar roles uh, for the black males uh, who, incidentally, they, they say they're, they have a date uh, for their children to play together. Uh, I thought that had some homoerotic undertones. I think some folks might say this is a so-called uh, bromance with Sergeant Al Powell and John McClain and them, you know, kind of or uh, Sergeant Al Powell supporting the white man through this whole uh, ordeal. Uh, I would ask about the word date, but I feel like the kind of homoeroticism of this just intensifies. So this is my last clip from Die Hard. Whew. Hope it was not just uh, wasting time for folks. Oh my God, moved from 30 years ago. So they bring in the FBI agents. One of them looks like he'd be classified as white, one non-white. They both say their name is Johnson. Have you heard Johnson used uh, kind of slang parlance uh, as a reference for male genitalia? Uh, yes, and even in ref even in connection with the word parlance, I think that's uh, how it's used in the Big Lebowski, which we discussed. In the parlance of the times, it is Johnson, right? So that's one of the uh, where the Big Lebowski's or the Little Lebowski's uh, masculinity is threatened by the what the rodent that bites him. Right? It's first, I think they refer to Johnson in that film. But how could I forget? Speaking of homoeroticism, Big Lebowski. I, I almost. I was just thinking of Big Lebowski. I could have put together a similar clip of homoeroticism here, uh, where Bruce Willis talks about uh, the LAPD officer being anally sodomized uh, when he messes up the bomb. Like there are a few times, not as many as uh, Big Lebowski, but. It's enough. It easily could have been a, a clip. I confined it to this uh, one moment with the FBI agents, Johnson, Johnson. Uh, this will be our last segment from Die Hard. We'll hear them. This is as they're towards the end of the movie as they're going to go and they think bomb the terrorist. Uh, but it doesn't work out that way. This is agents Johnson and Johnson. <laughs> Sometimes they make it plain, uh, dickhead, make it plain. But I thought additionally important you, uh, in the matrix, you talk about the coding, having, uh, so-called Asian characters in the language of the matrix, uh, and how that impacts, uh, or how that, you know, we think about, uh, the coding that this, uh, this, revolutionary 
technology that caused us all these problems and took over the world. It came from Japan. The no-count non-white people are responsible. In Die Hard, Nagatomi Plaza, uh, Mr. Takagi, non-white male, like uh, you talk about how the lead terrorists, they go in and they make this big to-do. He's one of the first person killed. And then they go and destroy this building. Both Bruce Willis, the police, the terrorists, everybody, all the white people basically participate in tearing up this building owned by this Japanese company. Uh, Within that segment, the white Johnson, he gives the yeehaw. We already had the John Wayne cowboy mention, just like Saigon. There are a number of reports, movies, even uh, one of the original uh, filmmakers of the Planet of the Apes franchise. He wrote about his talk about nostalgia. He wrote about his nostalgia. He was a Vietnam veteran uh, for being in Nam Saigon, helicopter, Agent Orange, bombing, killing non-white people. That nostalgia, the good old days. Mm. the black Johnson hey man I was a child when all that happened what are you talking about dickhead am I talking crazy here with the homoeroticism or the nostalgia about a conflict that allowed white people to kill over a million non-white people in the area known as Vietnam no I think that's I think that that's right on that that's there is a clear nostalgia there uh you know i didn't hear in the voices that, that was the white johnson that was saying it but yeah it's it's in a, a time when you know violent white violence could be exercised with impunity um i think that you know that kind of uh white violence with impunity is one of the fantasies by the way at the end of matrix resurrections too um people can do whatever they want again um but yeah, I think that there's a lot of uh, phobia of you know Asian presence in America in in Die Hard, and that that the uh, the kind of violence that is played out in the Nakatomi Plaza is is a lot about uh, releasing that anxiety. Um, yeah, I mean about the you know elements of homoeroticism. I just want to say I think probably one of the signature lines from, from the Sergeant L. Powell character, like like his bromance sidekick status and one of those reports he says he says something like, I love you, man, uh, to Bruce. And you know, it's taken as a tender moral support uh moment, but uh, you know, definitely um that idea, you know, that was the moment that I was thinking of when you said in the Matrix, you know, when um Neo is getting his mojo back and he has to have these non-white characters affirming him and, you know, expressing their love for him. Uh, and that we'd see that again, you know, I think that's, that's very much in the, in the Sergeant Al Powell character in that, you know, I love you, man. Uh, line. But yeah, uh, with the, with the word phrase, you know, uh, a dickhead, I mean, it's literally, sex on the brain or sex as the brain is defining it. Mm. Context of white supremacy. (laughs) I'm feeling unappreciated. (laughs) He has his 
black moral support right there, man. I love you. I love you. Hang in there. Hang in there. <laughs> I'm like, uh, woo. Uh, who is not qualified apparently to do anything but Twinkies cheer on white man. Uh, incidentally, Sergeant Al Powell does get to redeem uh, his marksmanship by protecting white life uh, at the end of the film. Uh, he does, you know, get to shoot. Uh, and kill a white man and then almost uh, kills Argyle as well. Thankfully, Bruce Willis is there to holster uh, the weapon literally uh, with his hand to stop him. Um, I guess the one other quick thing I'd say for we push off to uh, Manderley when Argyle, you write about uh, Argyle goes and he uh, literally bops, uh, punches Theo, uh, puts him in his place, uppity black person. Uh, Theo, even in that moment, in my view, is emasculated. He punches him and appears that he might have injured himself. Like he's shaking his hand like, and he's almost surprised at himself. Like, wow, I can't believe I did that. And they he loses his Terminator glasses. Theo, they even make that a point. He doesn't just get knocked back or anything else. Like his glasses go flying like, oh, that's the end of Theo. But Argyle, he's not Bruce Willis who kills dozens of people and ah, taking shoes and all the rest of one punch. He doesn't even kill him one punch. And Oh my God, I nearly broke my hand. Did you remember that scene? Yes, that's a great point. You know, I was focused on the glasses, but you're right about the punch as well, which I did not comment on it. Like, you know, he's, uh, Argyle is sort of the enforcer for, you know, the chauffeur, chauffeur role over this upstart, you know, wannabe terrorist role, uh, kind of, trying to using one uh, non-white character to discipline or put in place another non-white character. Uh, but also, as you say, even in giving Argyle that enforcer role, somewhat emasculating him by showing his weakness and, you know, in a way that you, you wouldn't see Bruce Willis, you know, shaking his fist if he, if he punched someone. I also want to say about like how central that trio is of Bruce Willis and Argyle and Theo. I mean, I think, you know, Reginald Bell Johnson is super important, but in the nostalgia for Die Hard, I just want to point out two, you know, more recent cultural moments. One is the uh, 2020 uh, television commercial, Die Hard is Back. Um, this is an ad for the Die Hard battery. And in order to recreate Die Hard is Back, what was necessary? It was Bruce Willis as John McClane, Clarence Gilliard Jr. as Theo, and Devereaux White as Argyle. Those are the characters that they brought back. Um, so it was necessary to have the white hero again defined, uh, you know, against Theo as the antagonist and Argyle as the sidekick, kind of doubling in that moral support role that Al Powell does in the movie. Um, I don't know if, if you've seen this movie, the Die Hard uh, battery ad. I think there's shorter, longer versions of it. But it, it ends with kind of the gleeful apparent uh, destruction of Theo uh, when this time it's John McClane who throws the grenade into Theo's truck. It's not even that Argyle really even gets to do anything this time other than ride along with the Bruce Willis character and gleefully cheer him on. Uh, as he's doing this. Um, and also the other thing is, uh, you know, when I looked this up on IMDb, what I got was a trailer 
for a 2018 edition of the movie, which is called the 30th Anniversary Christmas Edition. As you pointed out, it's you know more than 30 years. But in 2018, they celebrated it as with a Christmas edition. And the final two quotes in the trailer are Theo saying Merry Christmas, and then Argyle saying, if this is Christmas, i got to be here for a year. Um, so, again, making sure that that uh, the kind of the capstone in both of these is Argyle in that traditional chauffeur role supporting the heroic whiteness. These are the the invariant elements that are replicated in the Die Hard is Back, whether it's 2018 or 2020 or just in casual cultural reference. Context of white supremacy. I had not seen that. I was not aware, but wow, maybe I didn't understand white defiance. Maybe I guess I didn't understand the importance of the Negro cheerleader either, but wow, Argyle and Theo, uh, who knew uh, context of white supremacy. Um, I told I was stunned going back and watching Die Hard. It was like watching it, you know, for the first time. Uh, Manderley, uh, this is 2005, Lars von Trier. Uh, I guess I'll do this one. This is one that's not written about in the book, deviates quite a bit. Uh, So-called foreign film, I guess. Lars von Trier is a foreign filmmaker, still classified as a white man, I believe. Uh, But writing about the state... I'll do this one uh, and then we'll get to the clips on this one. I have longer clips. This is one I could have clipped the whole movie. It's so fascinating. So to give a synopsis, uh, let's see. I'll see if I can do this a little bit more just because there's personal backstory on this one. So Mandalay is a sequel for folks who've not seen it. The installment one is titled Dogville, uh, which came out a few years before in the life and times of Gus T. Renegade. I owned Dogville, uh, saw the film, watched it. Same characters that are in Mandalay are in Dogville. Uh, the short synopsis, I said this has to be a little over because I almost have to give you two synopsis. So Dogville, Grace, who is the main character in both Mandalay and Dogville, Grace, white woman. She has gangster parents, white father. She's trying to get away from them. She goes to this town and tries to stay with them, seek shelter. She, the police come searching for her. The townspeople, who are almost all white, because of this, they think she's some sort of criminal. So to give her shelter, they think that she needs to work for them, provide some tasks to kind of offset the risk of them harboring what they think or who they think is a fugitive. So it starts out. She does a little bit of work each day. It ends with literally her being raped by pretty much all the males in the town. This is known about. Uh, the white women in the town get resentful, so they hate her. Like she just mistre- she's basically treated like a slave. She tries to run away, and they shackle her so that she can't get away. Like she's just totally a slave and just abused by everyone in the town. Her gangster white father eventually locates her, liberates her, and per Grace's request, kills everybody in the town. Bang! Sixty seconds. So that's Dogville. That is installment one. It's minimalist felt like this. It's almost like theater in a way, even though like it had a major cast. Nicole Kidman was graced the first time around and lots of other names that you would know uh, from cinema were in Dogville. 
I, I owned that film, had talked about it. We discussed it all the time. Like, this is such a crazy film. All this. Fast forward, uh, Mandalay comes out in 2006. I did not know this was the sequel to Dogville. All I knew was, oh, they got this crazy movie that's set in the early 20th century in Alabama where this wacky town where slavery still exists. And this white woman goes to, she stumbles into the midst of all of this. That's all I knew. Like, oh, and I knew Danny Glover was in it. Like, oh, okay, cool. (laughs) Go watch this. This sounds goofy. I sit down the narrator's voice comes on. Dogville has a narrator. They have the same narrator from Mandalay. So his voice is so distinct. As soon as it comes on, I'm like, what is going on? Oh my God. This thing. Well, so I'm um, pause. Uh, I was watching this at the university of Washington library. I pause, literally ran around the library. Like what is going on? I can't believe this. Wow. It's a sequel to this. Oh my God. What am I going to be in for? Then I watch it. Whew, unlike anything I've watched. Uh, so I just told you that's the plot. White woman, Grace, Finds a town. Slavery still exists. 1930s. She decides she's going to stay and fix all of this. And it just goes from there. Um, I could just get to the sound clips. Let's see. This film is one of Gus T. Like I would always tell folks like there's certain films that I would say, oh, yeah, you can watch and learn quite a bit about racism, white supremacy. This is one high on the list. Uh, it's one of the few films that I've seen where it's the, I think might be the only film that I'm aware of that actually has a manual on how to practice racism in the movie. <laughs> it gets referenced repeatedly. Uh, in fact, we will start there. This is clip number one. It is called Mam's Law. Uh, Danny Glover's character is Willem. He's talking to Grace, who we've seen before. Dr. Kevorkian and I, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard, is taking Nicole Kidman's place, playing Grace this time around. Uh, So Grace, the white woman who's going to liberate all of the Negroes here, she's talking to Willem, and she finds out about Mam's Law, the racist code book. But I guess folks can keep in mind, so Bryce Dallas Howard, we talked about her from Black Mirror Season 3. Uh, I think other folks would probably know her from The Help. And I think a few other films that are very noteworthy, but that even contrasting like her role in The Help to her role as Grace here is one to ponder on. So this will be clip one. This is Mam's Law being explained at Manderley. Harvest might be improved if we plan it a bit late. Even says that in Mam's Law. Mam's Law? Uh, yes, Mam's Law. It's uh, all the rules for running the plantation. We weren't allowed to read it. Uh, it's just for Mam and the family. Only for Mam and the family, Grace thought. Certainly no more. And there on man's bed, skimming through the old book well filled with bizarre and vicious regulations, she came upon a page that looked strangely familiar. A table with numbers from one to seven. Somewhere, Grace had seen something similar for sure. 
Man's law revealed it all. The Mandalay Plantation, with its glamorous front mansion and pitiful rear where the slaves had their quarters, had been kept in an iron grip by these very numbers. They represented the psychological division of the Mandalay slaves. Sammy was a group five, a clowning nigger. The formidable Victoria was, of course, a number four, a hidden nigger. No wonder her husband, Bert, had found it necessary to accept a helping hand, even if it was another color from his own. Wilmer and Mark were loser niggers. Willem was a two, a talking nigger. Flora was a weeping nigger, etc., etc. There were pleasing niggers and crazy niggers by the dozen. The final category, number one, proudy niggers, consisted nowadays of Timothy, as expected, who was, of course, not there, and Elizabeth. No, it said seven, not one. She was a pleasing nigger, also known as a chameleon. A person of the kind who could transform herself into exactly the type the beholder wanted to see. This was how the slave system had been kept alive for so long at Mandalay. Bondage, even through psychology. Absolutely stunning. Just gets more stunning uh, as it goes along. Uh, as... I said Manderley, uh, first film that we've talked about that in no way, shape, form is referenced uh, in Color Monitors. Were you aware uh, of this film before Dr. Kevorkian and I guess opening thoughts? I, I had not been aware of this film at all. Um, I had, I remember now, heard of Dogville. Um, and you know, I think that uh, there's lots of reasons to talk about films uh, as you said, you know, Die Hard is important because it's such a common cultural point of reference. This is one, as you said, you can learn a lot about how white supremacy works. Uh, and I think it's also significant that it's from a film director that is just very critically uh, acclaimed, although there are, you know, divergent opinions about about Lars von Trier, a uh, Danish, Danish filmmaker. Uh, but when you look up Dogville, certainly it's on all kinds of, you know, greatest films of all time lists. So um, someone who is you know, coming out with this film next is someone who is, you know, has a claim to be taken um, seriously. Um, it's crazy, crazy film. But, uh, you know, in what you've said here, this, you know, this bondage through psychology of constraining uh, non-white bodies to a certain set of finite pre-established roles, um, you know, that is something that, that scholars uh, of the black experience and how it's been rendered on film, how it's been rendered in popular culture have been criticizing uh, for years and and pointing the limitations of the the book that I'm thinking of is is uh, uh, Donald Bogle's uh, book um, that is lays out you know sets of stereotypes that uh, black representation has always been constrained into. Uh, here, this is a more even more compendious list 
and I'll I'll say something. You know, I don't, I don't know what to do with it, but there's um, I, 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 there's in the reading of these these words, and you know, not just the the, the hateful word that is used every time, but in the the adjectives, there's a, just this real layer of of nastiness to the tone of the narrators, like the way he says the word losing, uh, uh, just is itself. Uh, even the act of naming these categories becomes an act of violence. I agree. I agree. The tone uh, and even absolutely uh, having names. This is your category. Losing Negra, pleasing Negra, talking, weeping Negras and absolutely act of violence right there and then how you're supposed to uh act all of that out um oh, so much t- uh, particularly where all of this goes uh within the film what do you make of the treatment of this white woman grace inserting herself uh into this plantation to fix things yeah i mean it's um uh... You know, the, this is a. I, I, you know, I thought of the the Brene Brown book. She's got a, a kind of a, a cartoon at the back of you know, the back of it, um, where it it it's talking about um, you know sort of well-meaning or uh, you know white well-meaning white executives trying to uh, cultivate meaningful connection. It says, um, and. Uh, this, this uh, white boss is, is talking uh, to either maybe it's her coworker, maybe it's her employee, but you know the white boss has got the desk and everything, um, and she's trying to you know present herself as a savior, white savior, um, and her non-white coworker says, but you haven't paused at all to ask me, hey, what do you need? You weren't straight, you went straight to fixing, and now you feel great. And you know, the, the white woman smiles and says, I do. And uh, the cartoon shows a halo uh, with arrow says, white girl halo uh, on top of her head. Um, so I think, you know, there is a, uh, in this film um, a critique of, of white saviorism, um, but it's a, a critique that per- perceives in such a way that, you know, I don't, it's hard to know where its allegiances lie or, or what it cares about. Um, there's one review by a critic, Peter Bradshaw, in in The Guardian um, that expresses some of what, you know, I think is difficult about, about Von Trier. Um, he says he's back, that maverick madcap from Denmark, Lars Von Trier, intent on annoying us all. Um Here's the second film in his projected Dogville trilogy um, about the headstrong daughter of 1930s gangster Roll Bryce Dallas Howard is now taken over from Nicole Kidman. The subject now is slavery. Uh, and after watching this mischievous, uh, ingenious film, one fact shines out. Nobody but nobody in the history of the world, and this is Peter Bradshaw saying this, nobody, nobody in the history of the world has ever cared less about the American slaves than our snickering maestro Von Trier. So, 
uh, I mean, I don't know what he was in his heart when he made this film, but um, the theory here, uh, Peter Bradshaw says, that Von Trier's mission is to vex and embarrass the United States. He does this in Madderley, implying not merely that America's white liberal condescension is just a new form of slave mastery. He does that. But also, he, Peter Bradshaw saying the film implies that black Americans are complicit uh, in their own oppression. So that's what, what he is taking from the, the overall project here. But a lot of it is, I think, about Von Trier wanting to be outrageous. Uh, and perhaps, you know, in a, you know, in all if trying to do justice to this, the, he says the point of this film is the conversations that people will have after it. So I, I hope that that would be at least true. That, you know, in, you know, guided by someone like Mr. Rusty Kennedy, Rusty Renegade, there's, there's something, there are important things to be learned about the way white supremacy works here. Lots of opportunities for interesting dialogue uh, about white supremacy racism uh, with this film. And at the same time, I totally agree. I do not think Lars von Trier uh, is an ally of black people in the States or anywhere else on the planet. Uh, I think I saw that general like tone in a number of different reviews like, hey, how is he thumbing his nose at? America for racism, white supremacy, as though they don't have it in his part of the world, or when well, he could have wrote a film about what's going on over there, or any other parts of the like what's going on here, uh, which that I think is true as well. Um, I guess so many things I could uh, touch on. The complicity, we'll get to that later with one of the other clips. Uh, before I get to one of the next clips, I think this film, in many different ways, uh, is does a great job white people are not ignorant about written really the way I've asked this question I think we asked it when we discussed the purge uh, who is more confused about racism white supremacy uh, and you were talking about Frederick Douglass and saying hey that these white slave masters they did not believe these lies like they knew some of these slaves had snuck off and learned how to read and other things, even though they would, you know, propagate all these lies. Oh, yeah, they're ignorant and stupid and they can't read and blah, blah, blah. And all the rest of this. You end up having a lot of victims uh, who end up believing these believing that white people are confused about racism, that sort of thing. It comes out in so many ways with Mam's law and that sort of thing. But I feel like one of the ways that it comes out, especially so they start out and grace her benevolent project. She's going to run all this and fix things. And she scolds all of the slaves, uh, you know, hey, you all are lazy. Y'all could be fixing up the cabins. And so Danny Glover's character says, well, we don't have the supplies. We don't have the materials to do so. Say, hey, you can cut down Mam's guard. You know, she's gone now. Has it been that great? Like we chopped that down. We'll get wood. Fix up the cabins. They'll be great. So they do this. The other whites that are on the plantation She's trying to so-called re rehabilitate them, too, so that they're no longer racist. So at one point, this, you know, eh, it won't even matter now. And she's like, what do you mean? They're like, well, you know, there's a dust storm coming and now we don't have a windbreak. So the crops will be ruined. And she's like, what, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, you all chopped down man's garden. So the sand will come through and that'll be that. Which happens. The crops, ruins the crops and all the rest of the slaves they just follow white laws. They don't know anything, no detail. Same with Theo. 
No big detail. We're just following the rules. So don't touch ma'am's garden. We don't touch it. They don't know the logic that, oh, this is to make sure that when windstorms come through, our crops and food doesn't get destroyed. The white people know this. They don't share this information with the slaves to keep them weak. Even after the liberation of the plantation, they still don't share this information. Is this another uh, point in the film, Dr. Kevorkian, white people not being ignorant about racism, showing clearly who is more confused about the operation of the plantation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the, I mean, the simple logic is who's, who's more confused, the people who are lying or the people who are being lied to? You know, the, the people who are lying are conscious that they're lying. They know both the truth and then the lie. The people who are being lied to, they know only the lie. Uh, you know, unless they uh, find access to the truth by other means, which, you know, can happen. You know. Lots of fascinating sound clips from Mandalay. Couldn't clip the whole film, but tried to do my best to snatch some of the better quotes uh, from the text. Uh, one of my favorite characters, scenes, character, all of the above, uh, is uh, Dr. Hector. Uh, for folks who've not seen this film, like, wow, so he has a little buggy that he rides in uh, since he won't have the visual aid. His little buggy, it says, wholesome diversions and entertainments, Dr. Hector's honest, and honest is underlined, pranks and japes. That's what's printed on his little buggy, uh, this white man, Dr. Hector. So we'll take this taking from the bottom and then words, he gives a little word game at the end of his little introduction. So we'll hear about the character of Dr. Hector and then hear from Dr. Kevorkian. See here, Montana Enterprise. I must say I've never gained access to Mandalay before. So when I drove by today, I saw the gates were open. I took it as a sign of new times. What exactly do you do? I entertain. Party games, card games, and the like. Well, nowadays, mainly the latter. You play for money. Oh, but I do more than play. I cheat. And you have no objections to revealing this business secret of yours? Oh, some people, but not to you. No, no, you see, if you and I establish the business relationship, I'm anticipating you will be happen to know exactly what to expect. And what can I expect? 80%. Now, you certainly know all the problems that arose when that our beloved New Deal was imposed in 65. Plantation owners had plenty of land, but nobody to work it. So they contracted with the former slaves, but they just didn't have the same hold on the rascals that they had in the old days. Of course, they uh, they lent them money, but quite a few of the niggers actually saved up, paid off the debts, so the plantation owners got worried. Bet they did. Oh yeah. See, that's where my idea came in. I went from plantation to plantation with the full backing of the plantation owners to entertain the employees. And they were sorely in need of diversion, let me tell you. We just had a little game of cards. And anyone 
was close to repaying his debt, I would take the shirt off their back. And I am prepared to offer you that very same service today, man. You are not convinced. Let me give you another token of my profound loyalty. I have here a letter. A man by the name of Stanley. He asked me to smuggle it out. Though perhaps you'd like to see it before it's mailed. Listen, Mr. Hector. Let me just say that I have never met a man whom I have instantly despised so wholeheartedly, both for his personality and his occupation. Does that mean you're turning down my offer? I never want to see you here again. All right. Well, I am disappointed. I should nevertheless bestow upon you my thought for the day. I indulge in word games. I like to give my clients something to laugh or think about when I leave. Best technique for a card shop is dealing from the bottom. Look as if you're dealing from the top of the deck. But instead you just take the bottom card. One that you know. You take them from the bottom means something else entirely in social terms. But it is what I do. I take from the bottom. Won't be hard to find me if you uh, change your mind. Context of white supremacy. I love the car horn. Uh, before we get to Dr. Kevorkian's, I'm, I take from the bottom. One thing I think about minimalist theater, which is what this is, if you see it, it doesn't, unlike Die Hard, this doesn't have all kinds of explosions and the Matrix, it doesn't have a billion dollar budget for special effects and bullet time and all that. So the dialogue had better be engaging. Take from the bottom. Before we get Dr. Kevorkian's response, I just wanted to read what's on his buggy one more time. Wholesome diversions and entertainments, Dr. Hector's honest pranks and japes. Thoughts about uh, the character, Dr. Hector? Yeah, uh, so, you know, Dr. Dr. Hector's honest pranks and japes, you know, the question is, you know, to whom is he honest? And the striking thing about the way he operates, uh, you know, as a, as a, someone who is upholding this system of white supremacy that prevents anyone from earning their uh, freedom or getting to freedom, uh, he's honest with the white owners. He's honest with the white overseers. Um, he is being here, so to speak, you know, straight with, with the Bryce Dallas Howard character. He, he tells her the way he operates, the way he cheats, uh, the way he takes from the bottom. In this case, he takes he takes from the uh, slaves, or in this case, the former slaves, who any money that they have earned. Um, but it is about, uh, you know, a complicity uh, 
between them. And, you know, at first his speech is just an occasion for the Grace character to give a really self-righteous uh, rebuff or rebuttal and say, you know, I want nothing to do with you. But that doesn't de- alter the, the terms of him being, quote, honest with her and in his dealings with her. Uh, you know, we'll see later that, in fact, he does give her the 80% cut of what he has stolen. Uh, and she accepts it, you know, um, uh, she wa- makes them the gesture of wanting to repay it to the plantation, but she has her, her own reasons uh, for doing this. But it's a it's a picture of a system in which um, people are practicing deceptions uh, on the non-white characters uh, in complicity with the, the white overseers of the plantation system, such that that plantation system can persist beyond slavery. Just going to add in, it seems he's not even honest with all of the plantation owners. Uh, he said it seems like it's with some of them. I guess they know, you know, what he's up to. Maybe some of them hmm. uh, he's not up to. He's not, you know, honest. I was I was trying to think, like, what fascinates me so much with his character. And I think one of my main points of emphasis for the 13 years that we've been on the air, just in my definition global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. It's so important, at least for me, because so many times non-white people, we are confused, deceived into talking about racism as a system or customs or laws or antiquated practices. Uh, it will somehow be presented as an ambiguous analogy as opposed to it's Dr. Hector. There are specific individuals classified as white what does it mean to be classified as white that are doing things? Slavery is not just happening. It's not just being maintained. White people are working together to deceive and abuse, mistreat all of the people that they say are not white to actually have a person. The people on the plantation, yes, they do what they do, but beyond where I use the the concept or the analogy of Voltron uh, based on a cartoon where you have these robots. <laughs> hey, color monitors right on time uh, for Voltron, where the robots come together to form a larger robot. That is the system of white supremacy. White people work together. And this is on the macro and the micro white people work together to maintain the plantation. It's just the plantation is the entire known universe. It's not just, Alabama but that's one of the re- and he's so brutally honest with her I mean he just oh I cheat and then the, the word again English professor as well I take from the bottom he's not just on like flagrant I take from the bottom in cards and life Uh, Let's see what before I get to 
our next sound clip. So the star of this film, Bryce Dallas Howard, we talked about her Black Mirror, major conflict with a black male, season three, episode one, social media. Uh, she is also big star of The Help, which is pretty plantational. Uh, Hilly Holbrook, uh, her character, who gets to say nigger quite a few times uh, in the film. Uh, I don't have, I don't know if you've seen The Help or not or know anything of it. Uh, if you're familiar with the film, uh, how would you compare and contrast Grace's role here, flagrant system of racism, as opposed to her role as Hilly Holbrook uh, in The Help? So, uh, yeah, the theme about the Henry Oldbrook, boy, it's been many years. I did, uh, there was like an educational free screening that was done, and I, I did go to that. And uh, uh, one of the results of that was that, uh, uh, well, professor of history uh, at UT uh, got together with some other um, black women historians and wrote. Uh, a critique of the help um, and it's you know it's plantational uh, mentality uh, now I don't have uh, you know, I'm trying to remember I remember we talked about Bryce Dallas Howard in, in, in Nosedive um, there were some elements of Nosedive that came up again in this movie uh, namely the fantasy uh, uh, the stereotype of the fantasy of the white woman and the attraction for the black man and how dangerous that is for, for the black man. Uh, but I've you know, seen a focus about, um, you know, really uh, exaggerated, but, you know, white distaste for the functions of the non-white body. Uh, like, you know, central horror being like not wanting to share a bathroom um, and, uh, you know, the big punchline of the movie focusing on uh, a scatological prank or jape. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I should try to look up and find out what uh, Dinah Berry wrote about it. Uh, I remember being funny and convincing at the time, but it's been, been a number of years. Oh, that's right. Uh, Dinah, Remy Berry, Their Pound of Flesh. Great read. I forgot yes. she's down at UT Austin. They have quite a little collection of scholars uh, who talk about racism, white supremacy. I'm so, I'm so thankful to hear that, uh, that they wrote a critique because I wrote that down exactly as you were telling me that they had a free screening for the help. Talk about nostalgia for white supremacy racism of years gone by. Uh, I was writing it down right as you were saying it. That film is so ahistorical. I mean, it's both the book and the film. Uh, it's fiction, but I mean, wow. Like in the midst of presenting itself as his nostalgia, like, oof. Anywho, uh, yeah, folks can think about that uh, if you've seen the help in this film. Uh, yeah, it's, there's some some staggering uh, similarities between the two, uh, and the the sexual component as well. Uh, that even plays with our next audio segment. Uh, this is talking about Mam's Law and 
white people seeing what they want to see, the fungibility of black people, especially black males in this component. This is her coming to a realization about Timothy and Ma'am's Law. Grace went straight to the last pages with the tables of personal details on the slaves of Mandalay. Where was Timothy now? Yes, his name had a one beside it. A proudy slave, as you'd read earlier. Or did it? She looked more closely at the handwritten number. She compared it to the seven next to Elizabeth's name. The pleasing nigger of the chameleon type, an expert in changing character according to whatever was opportune and what would titillate and enthrall the other person. And then Grace could see it. Timothy's number was not a one, but a seven. She'd only wanted to read it as a one. There was even a note beside Timothy's name. Caution. Diabolically clever. Titillate and enthrall. <laughs> That's, I said, if you're not going to have a whole lot of explosions and bombs, you better have a great story and really engaging dialogue. Titillate and enthrall. Fascinating on many accounts. Uh, what do? You, and again, I'll just pause for once again. They had a special note about Timothy. We're not even going to leave it to chance for there to be confusion. Is he a one? Is he a seven? Is this an act? We have a special note. This is a dangerous nigra, which I've said before, the system of white supremacy. They take note of non-white people, victims of racism, who seem like they might be less confused. We just had a couple days back the holiday for Dr. King assassination, right? All those Cointel Pro papers, right? Racists, individuals classified as white, they make note. Uh-oh, got to keep an eye on this one. Danger, danger. Not confused about racism, white supremacy. Uh, we fast because there's so much I could whew, to get to this point just for, for our listening audience. Uh, so the plantation rehabilitation at this point, like they were able to resurrect the harvest even though the windstorm decimated things and they got the money but no count timothy who grace has been lusting after the whole time openly like other people have become aware of this and they have explicit scenes about all this uh so he runs off with the money loses it all to dr hector who as dr kevorkian said brings back the 80 percent like oh yeah i'm taking my 20 percent cut and i'm an honest dude and you know great doing business with you <laughs> so grace as we hear she goes and what I thought he was a what he she doesn't think he gambles and all the rest of this is after they've already had sexual intercourse graphically uh, as well. Uh, what do you make of the revelation where Grace finds out? Oh, man, he's a seven, not a proudy nigger. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 letting the error out of her fantasy. I mean, it's what it says is that she would wanted to see him as a one. And I think this retrospectively, um, you know, takes some of the heroism out of some of his clearly, you know, insightful and truth-telling remarks earlier. Um, 
you know, very early on, um, you know, Grace says, um, she's initially talking to the Danny Glover Wilhelm character, um, where Danny Glover says, we'd like to thank you properly for what you've done, uh, like letting us know that slavery is, is no more. Uh, and we later learned that he's, he's not really grateful for that, um, because he has internalized man's law, and in fact is the author of it, you say. But what Grace says, she says, those gates should have been opened 70 years ago. That is, this is 1933, so it should have been, you know, opened with uh, emancipation. And really quickly, uh, black man we haven't met yet, but I believe it's Timothy, says, oh, was it okay before that? Uh, you know, like it should have been opened 70 years ago, well, not, not before that. Um, and also says really skeptically, uh, you know, we've heard of your kind, a society lady who's intent on, on rescuing black people. So kind of, uh, calls out her, uh, unthinking reference to that, you know, that non-white people should only have been free after emancipation and also calls her out for this, uh, white savior, uh, vision that she has of herself sweeping in and, and helping people, but not even, but not really asking them what kind of help they want or, or need. Um, but what I think, you know, happens later. So he, in that moment, he is playing the role of the one, uh, the proud person, right? The proud person who is not confused, the proud person who knows what the score is. Um, but, Later, the the movie, the script, you know, undermines him by showing him to be weak, to be someone who could indeed be fooled um, by Dr. Hector, Hector in one of these japes and, and have his money taken from him. Um, but in a way, it seems like he was fulfilling that role of the one, the proud leader, because that was Grace's fantasy for him. This is what sh- this is the kind of. Uh, non-white person she wanted to have an encounter with. Um, so that's the interchangeability between the seven and the seven is the chameleon who presents whatever aspect is desired. In this case, what was desired was of the seven was to appear to be one because as her father has mocked her, you know, this is in fact her fantasy um, to be, you know, to be hunted uh, by someone who is, you know, really in charge. Um, but, you know, that's what I, I think is one of the ways in which the the, the movie, you know, shows is, is its 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 non allegiance to this idea of, you know, what would appear to be Timothy as a leader of self determined black emancipation uh, undermines him as as someone who could just be be tricked that he's not as diabolically clever um, as even is being supposed, perhaps. <sighs> Unfortunately, that is often the case in the system of white supremacy. They said that uh, Minister Malcolm, diabolically clever, and lots of folks that white people ended up killing pretty easily. Um, so important for 
So many. The fungibility, Dr. Uh, Tommy Curry talks about that quite a bit in the man not, which for sure applies to what we have been uh, talking about uh, today. Uh, not humans, but uh, being able to conform and shift to whatever <clears throat> the white gaze wants to see. And I almost made that a sound clip. Uh, William Defoe, uh, who's playing Grace's father uh, in this version, he tells her at the very beginning, or he's not even talking to her, as you say, he's talking to one of the other gangsters, white gangsters, uh, that, oh, yeah, that's every woman's fantasy. They might want, not want to admit it, but, you know, civilization, you know, that's not sexy. <laughs> their, their whole jungle fantasy, and i.e., I'm almost reading that explicitly as sex with a non-white male. Taught, that's what I said, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, tall, dark, and handsome, and then bammo, right there with Timothy. Yes, that's it, fungibility. Willem's too old and some of the other characters uh, that we meet. Incidentally, she's so concerned about black people. I love it. They pointed out at the film when she's absconding from the plantation, she passes Bert, who has been hung, trying to get away from the plantation and no remark, like, oh yes, hanging nigra, no, get out of here. I'm tired of this whole place. Um, one more clip for Manderley. Uh, this is kind of the climax right before uh, we get to that whole scene where she passes poor old Bert, who made it about three seconds off of the plantation before white terrorism. Uh, let's see. Yes, this. What a scene. What a scene. So this is old Timothy uh, giving a response to Grace as she's going to uh, give her moral lashing to all of the black people for their self-hate. Timothy, you can stop being proud and silent. Cry and shout and beg for mercy. Like the Mansi you are. The Mansi who you despise so much. And it's that hatred, Timothy, and the rest of you bear towards yourselves that you'll never make me accept. You are a cheat of the lowest kind. And Willem and all of you who follow him are nothing but a bunch of traitors to your race. I hope that your fellow Negroes will one day uncover your betrayal and punish you for it. You make me sick. I'm sure you're quite right, Miss Grace. Most likely it's impossible to revile us niggers enough. But what I don't get is... Why it makes you so angry? What do you mean? Aren't you forgetting something? You made us. Probably the only thing that could have stopped the lady with the whip from carrying on forever was the cheerful tinkle that announced her father's presence. She needed his support now. Mandalay too really was a place the world would be better off without. 
I told you all in Dogville, per Grace's request, her father and his gangsters kill everybody at Dogville at the end. So the language suggests the same thing could have happened there. Incidentally, how we got to that moment, they explained to her like, oh yeah, by the way, Willem, who is played by Danny Glover, I helped write Mam's Law and we all agreed to remain here as slaves. So Grace is all disgusted, like, what? I've been tricked blind no count scoundrels and yourself hate like hey it's alabama white people are not trying to end slavery racism white supremacy we're just going to be devastated see what happened to old poor bird lynch took three steps off the plantation no thanks we'd rather just stay here and hey it's flagrant in your face slavery we know what it is and there's a certain bit of so-called comfort plantational comfort we'll call it we would prefer that as opposed to lying to ourselves and thinking that we're messed up and defective when no, we got Dr. Hector and everything to do to deal with, right? Honest diversions and such. Uh, that's how we get, they want her to stay as the plantation manager and she's disgusted by all of this. And then, oh, Timothy. And he quotes her because as we said, going all the way back to the beginning of the film, that's exactly what grace had said to dear old dad at the very beginning of the movie, we made them. They are our product. What do you, what do you make of this climax moment of the film? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I actually thought of something that one of your, your listeners uh, said to me on a, on a prior show. Um, it was kind of a summary of, a view that white people have of, of non-white, uh, non-whites uh, in America. Um, he said to me, so he says, so what you're saying is that uh, white people view, you know, the, the failure of slavery as a failed technology, right? It was an attempt to turn human beings into instruments, into tools, into something non-human, and it was something um, that failed. Um, and you know what Timothy says. You know why? Why are you so mad? Um, you know you see in her cruelty and uh, Grace's cruelty, and her willing to punish him. You know the the sad human truth that people are often most angry when they are most in the wrong. Um, you know, no one likes to be told of their own guilt or presented with the consequences of their own guilt. That is uh, enraging, and it's enraging to her because it, um, you know, shatters her her view of herself. Uh, even throwing her own words words back to her. Um, Am I? Uh misreading that scene and particularly I told our listeners our book club is tomorrow with Alice Siebold Lucky which is about a white woman being raped allegedly by a black male and him subsequently being convicted serving 16 years and then we find out 20 years later whoops not the guy at all and in fact was she even raped? Anthony Broadwater being his name just exonerated uh, at the end of 2021 but poignantly I said wow in that very book in between her writing a poem about lynching a black male and chopping off his balls literally in between all of that 
She writes extensively about bondage, S&M they call it, leather and whips and chains amongst many of her white co-eds. How this seemed to be pretty widespread at Syracuse University. I said, man, this whipping scene and Timothy doesn't have a shirt on and she's all out of breath. Like, man, this is kind of sexualized as whipping often is. Am I misreading or am I logical, Dr. uh, Kevorkian? I think it's the way the whole movie is framed. You know, in a sense, it's the it's the first thing it's her first the first thing she learns about this plantation manderly uh, is, you know, some woman comes out the front and says, there's someone going to be whipped. And, you know, she wants to go intervene and stop this. But there's also the possibility that from the very beginning, that is what she finds attractive. And in that very first scene, he is also shown with his shirt off. He's already shown potentially as an, as an object of her desire. Uh, again, it's framed by this, you know, snide reference that the the father makes to the other gangsters that this would be her fantasy. But in in a way, the whole arc of the film is about, uh, yeah, paying off that potential, uh, you know, erotic attraction to the black man's body that is about to be to be beaten at the very beginning, and then she actually fulfilling that role herself at the end. context of white supremacy uh there's a photo montage that i thought is uh well he has the same thing happens at dogville uh the credits go by as there's a photo montage uh two shots that i i think are um extraordinary um one of them more so now well this film came out in 2005 so it was at the time but they show a black male uh who appears to be shooting up heroin Uh, on the top of a skyscraper in New York City. And in the background, you can see the former Twin Towers. That's one. And then the other one is a black male custodial worker. And he is sweeping the feet at the Lincoln Monument as some elder white tourists pass by. I thought those two were especially striking images uh, as this film uh, concludes basically after that scene with Grace uh, whipping in a very erotic manner, uh, Timothy, and then scurrying away from the plantation with the audio that I played before that, you know, America not ready to accept black people. Like, that's crazy talk. And then they have all of these uh, images, like, uh, powerful uh, conclusion uh, to a film. Uh, I think, is that, unless I missed something really important, I think think that is everything I had on Mandalay and then we can wrap with with King Richard I've still got a little off off schedule but man, I could have talked and played about Mandalay forever King Richard newest of the bunch right there with Matrix Resurrections King Richard thankfully will save us at least a little time because I felt that was the only film that does not require any sort of uh, explanation. Uh, it's about Venus and Serena Williams. I think most people around the world know those names. Uh, at least, oh yeah, tennis champions. Yes, yes. Uh, that's what the film is about. Uh, just focusing on their adolescence uh, and Richard Williams, uh, him, the time and energy. I guess in the entire family, uh, in 
the process of taking them from just childhood tennis players to the dominant uh, sports titans that we know some I guess the events these are like early 90s so 30 years uh, after all of these events transpired um, I absolutely love this film for lots of reasons uh, that we'll get to uh, as we chat about it and play some of the audio cl uh, clips uh, let's see uh, let's see play a clip play a clip I'll play a clip. So this first one, this is pretty uh, early on in the film. So we meet the Williams family uh, with Mr. Williams, uh, his wife. Uh, they have five children, Venus and Serena being uh, in that uh, group. Uh, Oracine Price, it took me a minute to get her name. So it's Richard Williams, Oracine Price, Serena, Venus, Yatunde, and they have two other sisters. So we meet them, Venus and Serena, they're like, tweener and early tween like 12 and 10 ish uh in this whole process southern california uh and they're going out learning how to play tennis mr williams is trying to get white tennis instructors to help his daughters uh mr williams played by uh will smith uh, in this role the legend uh and so they go around trying to get white coaches and they're going in compton and he's getting beat up by black gang members uh incidentally for folks who've been listening to the cows we read Richard Williams, Black and White, The Way I See It, his autobiography, which covers all of the events in this movie and beyond. It's not in my top 10, but woo, it is, it's close enough that if I had a top 40, which I don't, it would be on it. If I had a top 30, it would be on it. I don't have a top 30, but it is super close. Oh, I'm so glad that we read it and it covers, and in more detail, it covers everything that's in the movie. Uh, so, Gang members, black gang members are fighting with him and beating him up and he has to clean the course like it's kind of difficult, super challenging, as you would imagine. Uh, so in the midst of all of this, white social workers are called on him. I thought this was such an important scene for so many reasons. The last time Dr. Martin Kevorkian was here with us, we talked about... <laughs> Oh, man. We talked about uh, the new American classic, The Hate You Give, that was being recommended this time last year. If folks can think back, we talked about a scene where the young white boyfriend, he was in the household talking to a white father about being in a tragic arrangement, dating his black daughter. And he like faces him down and kisses his daughter uh, right in front of the black dad, even though the black dad is not happy about this arrangement at all. And they're like, yeah, that's right. I'm not going to be afraid of you. Yeah. Kind of hold that. If you've seen the hate you give, if you read it with us, if you've seen the movie, hold that in mind. While we hear this scene, a white social worker has been called to the Williams household. We will hear how Oracine Price and Richard Williams respond context of white supremacy Daddy, why are the police here i don't know no ma'am what's going on everybody okay they got a call said there was trouble in the house and that we were being rough with the girls and they needed to look a call from who not at liberty to say Okay. Yeah. Okay. You uh, you all need to look around. Great. You can check on in the cupboards. Maybe you can go check under the beds. Make sure it's no monsters. It's a little wet for practice, don't you think? Don't the girls have schoolwork to do? They do their homework. 
Tundi's first in her class. Lynn and Isha are too. That's right. Girls, spell civilization. C-I-V-I-L-I-Z-A-T-I-O-N. Okay, Mr. Williams, Wait, this now, is on, really hold, not necessary. Hold on. You want to check on the kids? Let's check on the kids. We got future doctors and lawyers, plus a couple tennis stars in this house. Now, I understand you got to do your job, even if some crazy-ass neighbor do call talking foolishness. And I don't even mind you saying we hard on these kids. You know why? Because we are. That's our job, to keep them off these streets. You want to arrest us for that? Fine, but what you're not going to never do is come knock on this door talking about you had to blow their damn brains out in them streets because they running with hoodlums and doing drugs and things. That's what you're not never going to say in this house. You want to arrest us for that? That's fine. You need to be arresting them parents at them tennis matches. That's who need to be getting arrested. Context of white supremacy. King Richard. So again, I don't know if Dr. Kevorkian, if you remember last year when we talked about the hate you give and the scene that I referenced, the young white boy is there with Star and he's going to talk to her dad, Maverick, uh, about their interracial relationship and facing him down. We talked about that. If compare and contrast that scene as we get into King Richard. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you have Richard, you have a strong black father who is not going to be undercut uh, in the way that, you know, I think the hit you give ultimately undercuts Maverick uh, and, you know, betrays his role as this strong man who just wants the best for his daughter and wants to protect her. Um, this is a movie that celebrates the way uh, Richard Williams is always has the back of her, his, his children always wants the best for them and is, is strong and going to, to jeopardize that. Um, you, you had Maverick, you know, undercut, um, in a way that Timothy is also undercut, you know, in, uh, in Mandalay, they say, well, you could see Timothy had his prejudices too. Right. That that's one of the ways um, that you know a strong uh, non-white character gets undercut to say, well, look, you know, non-white people are are racist too. Uh, you, you don't you don't get that with, with Richard. You just get this uh, fiercely uh, protective person who also wants the daughters to do what they want to do, uh, and is and raise them in such a way that they have you know, the right, the right dreams to be doctors and lawyers and, and maybe tennis stars if that, if that works out. Um, you know, this is a, uh, uh, you know, one of the Venus at one point says, you know, um, you know, about the tennis, you know, you know, I don't, didn't want to let you down. And he says, how, you know, what I take him to me by that is like, you know, you've done everything, uh, We've asked, and you follow your dream, and you've studied, and you, you're going to have a good life no matter what, whether you win that tennis match, whether you don't win that tennis match. Um, but that's what we do at the end when he said that those tennis parents that should be controversial or criticizing, but you see it beautifully also illustrated 
uh, in this film where you see parents that are just dragging their their little kids to the tennis court and saying things like, it doesn't seem like you even want to be out there. And you're thinking, yeah, that kid doesn't want to be out there. But very clearly, um, Venus and Serena do want to be out there. That's their joy. Um, so I you know, also want to say that you can see how well this turned out, how the movie turned out in just how happy Venus and Serena are about it when they talk about it and um, you know, how happy Will Smith is in reflecting on, and they ask him if, if uh, you know, if Richard Williams could see one scene, um, you know, what would you want it to be? And he says, the one that was really important for me. I don't know if you're going to, are, are you going to do the clip where uh, he cuts off the interviewer um, who's trying to kind of get under Venus's skin or erode her confidence. Um, but, you know, he's, uh, the interview was challenging Venus and saying, like, are you sure you're ready to, to play? Because your, your dad just did this unusual thing. It didn't have you play juniors with all those tennis kids. And, and she's already answered it confidently. And that's what Richard steps in and, and says, look, she's already answered it confidently. Why don't you just move on? Why don't you leave her alone? You've heard her answer. Don't just try to produce some other outcome and try to, to, to undercut her. And Will Smith says he remembers seeing that interview happen in real time, like when it happened, not in the movie back in the 90s, and saying that that was impactful for him in how he wanted to parent, because in the real life interview, he saw the look on Venus's face of how she knew that her dad, you know, supported her and wanted the best for her. Um, and he, Will Smith, took that as a way that he could be um, protective of the best interests uh, of his own own children. Uh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Uh, and just Marvel's Black Panther uh, has been discussed, and I've said for a long time, like, I'm not enthusiastic about that film at all and don't see that as something working against racism and all the rest. The way people talk about Marvel's Black Panther, the film, that's the enthusiasm and excitement that I have for this film. Uh, the same way that you talk about Venus and Serena, like they're so happy when they talk about this film. And Will Smith, I know he said he felt so much pressure. And I mean, even think about that. His illustrious film career could have been in The Matrix. Um, him saying yeah. <laughs> that... Uh, this film like I knew Venus and Serena were going to watch this I knew Richard Williams was going to see this like woof better get this right and to answer your question no I didn't make a sound clip of the scene that you're talking about where the white reporter is asking his daughter like whoa you think you can go in there and beat this professional player tomorrow like she's number one in the world really she says oh yeah I think I can do it just really are you sure you haven't played just yep I can do it Really? Like, and he hops in. The reason that I didn't, we read Black and White the way I see it uh, in the book club. And when I saw this movie, I love it. Love it, love it, love it. My review should have been done. I've just been lollygagging. But it reminded me I love the book so much more. As I said, it goes into so much more detail. As we were reading the book study, I went back and got the real footage that Will Smith is talking about. Oh, 
once you see the real footage, there is no way you can get Sidney Poitier, Denzel Washington, Will Smith, anybody you like, whoever you think the best actor is, uh, on their best day, there is no way. Like, and particularly as you said, what Will Smith talked about, like him seeing that, like, oh, that's the way that I want to be a dad, a black father in a system of white supremacy, like, and seeing the impact that it had on his daughter, like, oh, he has got my back. That's the tagline from the hate you give, like seeing that literally like my black dad has my back. Oh, they get close in the film. Definitely. Kudos. But once you've seen the original, no Cuban close, close. Uh, I do. Oh, man. One of my favorite scenes. That scene is a great one. But one of my favorite scenes in the movie, this one here, for so many reasons that we can chat about. Uh, this is kind of mid movie. So at this point, they've been practicing and so many things that I love about this film. So many of them are right here. But this is uh, both Venus and Serena at this point have started to compete a little bit and they've won a few trophies and are doing pretty well and are beginning to see the rise in their stardom. Just seeing how this pivots, how all of this is woven together. Amazing. While we hear all of this, because we're going to hear the infamous just say no I forgot to mention Die Hard features a white man Ellis who is snorting cocaine liberally and nobody comes out and beats him up and drags him off uh, in hand because what are you doing snorting cocaine white man we don't tolerate drugs and that doesn't happen but right here just say no and we did already have a mention of Rodney King here it is at a time when tennis prodigies seem to be servicing every week, the latest hot prospect is Californian Venus Williams. There she go. Last weekend, Williams captured her 17th singles title in less than a year by winning the age 12 and under Southern California Junior Sectional Championship. Listen to this, y'all. In the investigations into an apparent incident of police brutality in Los Angeles. CNN's Robert Vito has the story, but first, this word of caution. Some of you may be disturbed by the violent nature of the pictures contained. Her concentration was excellent. Boy, did she wax me. That's from Dorothy Cheney, y'all. Venus, you're famous. <laughs> <laughs> it's what appears to be a group of Los Angeles police officers beating a suspect with nightsticks and kicking him as other officers look on. George Holliday, who works for a drain cleaning company, taped the incident. Police, they got them on tape this time. He was warned on suspicion of was at a clinic in Oakland when a young girl came up and asked me, what do we do if our friends pressure us to do drugs? And without thinking, I said, just say no. Pretty incredible. Your girls are standing with the former first lady of the United States. 
You did that. Enjoy the tennis, everyone. There's the man. Richard, I want you to meet George MacArthur and Laird Stabler. George Laird. Hey, Richard, nice to meet you. We spoke on the phone. Oh, that's right. Good to meet George you. George is the head of our agency right oh, here. At the big balls. That's a big boss right there. <laughs> yeah, I can tell by the cigar. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Sit down, guys. Oh, sit oh thank down. you. Yes. Heck of a girl you got there. Just incredible. Love to help you take her to the next level. Yeah. Can I get you anything? Usual. I think. Oh, Nardo Palmer. Okay. Well, thanks for coming, Richard. What do you think of the club? Oh, it, it, it's really great. Uh, we appreciate everybody taking off their hoods before we came in. <laughs> we, we like that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's, uh, we've been here a couple of times. Ease, I think that might be my second favorite moment in this film out of many, many. Just the sweep that's less than three minutes of movie time. That's no editing. I didn't switch any. That is live time actual. That is two minutes, 40 seconds, 45 seconds of the movie. They start with Yatunde reading about Venus's accomplishments and next sensation. And that in the background, they're not even facing the television on the TV. Black male Bernard Shaw at CNN is announcing and showing the footage of Rodney King's beating by the LAPD, not Sergeant Al Powell. They show the beating of Rodney King. The girls don't even turn around to look at this or a scene and Richard look at each other and Orsine looks at him at least they got it on video e they immediate pivot from that to Nancy Reagan just say no war on drugs seems like that could be related LAPD beatdowns of black people war on drugs again they didn't beat Ellis down and die hard for snorting coke in Nakatomi Plaza immediately from that wow Richard you did this you got Venus and Sarita with the former first lady white woman wow this is amazing which it is they pivot to the meeting where Richard Williams meeting with white tennis executives makes a racist joke about white people thank you for taking off the hoods amazing three minutes of movie making. Uh, what what are your thoughts on this segment of the film, Dr. Kevorkian? Yeah, I mean, in particular, that, you know, reference of her taking off the hoods, that's something that, you know, that's a history that clearly Richard Williams has insisted on that he will not allow to be forgotten. Uh, you know, again, it's, it's something that, that frames the film where he says, you know, growing up in Louisiana, tennis was not something that we played. Uh, I was too busy running from the Klan. Um, and, you know, and he's explaining this again early on to a very smug, chuckling white man about this plan that he has uh, for the girls. And, and, and the man is trying to divert him into basketball and, you know, some sort of stereotypical way. But again, you know, he is insisting um, that, you know, white people not be allowed to forget this history uh, and at the same time, it's something that is not going to interfere with his plan. Um, you know, there's these uh, executives saying, we'd love to help you. Um, but, you know, uh, Richard, even in we selecting coaches, is very carefully 
as, as settled upon coaches that don't give that message of, of, you know, we're the ones taking the next, next level. He's got a coach that when the result comes, will say, as this coach does, you did that to Serena and Venus. Um, yeah. So, uh, again, about the, the Rodney King beating, you know, uh, you know, in comparison to, say, what we saw as a, as a pivot that happens in the film of, of The Hate You Give, where the protagonist uh, at the end says, oh, it's not about the hate you give, meaning the police or in the system white screen. It's about the hate we give. It turns to sort of a blaming of the, the non-white community as being part of this. Uh, that was something that was put in the film. Here, uh, it's insisting, no, it's about the hate that white police officers and this, you know, practitioners of the system of white supremacy give. In response to that, it's about the love that we, the family, the Williams, uh, you know, Richard and Orsine are, are going to give to our daughters um, that's going to protect them from that. Uh, it's about the way we're going to teach them to help themselves and not give in to the, the hucksterism of the people saying, well, we, we, we want to help you and you need us. Reminded me of uh, your commentary on the Die Hard franchise later on when they bring Samuel L. Jackson into the fold. He instructs his uh, mm. black nephews, uh, who do we not want to help us? White people, they say in unison, which interestingly, they boomerang back later around in that film to use that to say Samuel L. Jackson is racist. Like when they get to the uh, the headquarters they lie to him and tell him that Simon planted a bomb in Harlem close to a school, which is not true. He planted it someplace else, but they lie. And then Bruce Willis says, Simon doesn't care about color, even if you do. And then he's like, oh, yeah. And he turns around. But yet yeah, they use that on him to say he's racist. But anyway, uh, love for this film. Absolutely love it um, in terms of Richard Williams uh, in... <laughs> We got this. Oracine, I, your family, we do not need every white helping hand uh, to come out and, yes, do this for us and do that for us and listen to everything, even challenging the white coaches uh, who say that they're experts. Uh, just, when do you see this? And it's authentic. This is not some Marvel comic book or what have you. These people exist. You have seen the finished product. We have revered them uh, for years even while uh, kind of uh, besmirching Richard Williams and even the girls I mean that's a whole nother series of movies um, did you know uh, that uh, their sibling Yatende Price did you know she was killed in 2003 I did not know that I didn't it's been so much 20 years so I figured either a lot of people either didn't know or forgot um, I remembered and as soon as I heard them mention Tundi like she's so prominently featured in the film like not I mean she's not talking all the time and everything but I mean she's prominent like wow every time I saw her it was just like oh man that's uh, uh. and then I, I was reading and Serena I think both she both uh, the siblings 
uh, said that they just, you know, begin weeping every time they see her uh, on the film and all the rest are just uh, poignant for so many reasons. It's not a detraction. It's just, oh, man, I didn't I mean to know that she was that involved and they were so tight knit. And then what happened? That was in 2003. So most of these, if it's like 10 years before all this happened and she was involved in promoting them and all the rest of it, just yeah, uh, you're Tunde Price very much. Uh, I thought that was really great to have her included in the film, not forgotten. Um, the let's see, had another clip. Make sure I get there before I get even to the other clip. As I said, like I love this film, the way that people talk about. Marvel's Black Panther that's the way that I feel I guess I'll ask that question do you see that same level of enthusiasm the way that black people and kind of everybody white people non-white people uh, the kind of joy uh, and exuberance that they had for Marvel's Black Panther do you see that same level of joy about King Richard yeah I mean it's hard to say but I I believe I'm going to guess I'm going to guess not I mean uh, but I don't know. I want to. I want to hope and think that this film is going to get some some recognition. Um, I think people are talking about it, but I I, don't, I think it's not venerated the way that Black Panther is. You know, people talk about it as you know the greatest Marvel movie and are uh, falling over themselves to say how great it is. Um, I haven't I haven't noticed that yet about King Richard, but I think it does, it is getting positive attention um, but not not nearly to the same extent obviously I think you know box office could tell you that pretty easily too the Black Panther is huge and um, you know and it, again it's it's a you know it's a movie as is I think we talked about it briefly it's a movie in which you know the character that is is most serious about taking on uh, white supremacy directly is the one that gets that gets taken down in, in Black Panther. Because um, again, just like you know, the comparison to Maverick or the comparison to uh, uh, what's the guy Kill uh, Killgrave, right? Um, you know, you have uh, in the Hate You Give, you have Maverick, and in Black Panther, you have Killgrave, where you know, strong non-white characters who are undercut or taken down. Uh, here you have, uh, you know, proud black man who, who, who stands proud start to finish. Uh, and Based on a real person, uh, not a, a character in a comic book uh, or a fictional novel, uh, a real actual person uh, who is the parent of two real actual black females that the whole world uh, should revere for their accomplishments over the last quarter century. Um, yeah, before, I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's so great. Like, so there's so many sports movies where there's this formula of, you know, the, 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 the the underdog team wins in the end or something, you know, it's scripted. No, these are actual champions and they did it because both of their parents made independent study of how this was going to work. As you point, you know, they would defy their coaches, even on technical aspects. Uh, you learned that 
uh, orosine was even the origin of this idea of the open stance that they talk about. It's super important that revolutionized the game of tennis. Everyone was teaching the other way, but, uh, you know, orosine and then Richard, you know, figured out that, uh, you know, technically the, 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 their, their girls could get back to the middle faster if they played with the open stance. Um, that's one thing she says, he says, the coach, uh, like even after he's been to sense, he says you need to open your stance. Your stance is too closed, and that's of course the metaphor for the whole system that they're trying to break into. But it's also insistence on this self determination. We're going to figure out what's the best way for us, uh, and it works because it actually works, not because someone wanted a script to feel good movie. Not a script to feel good. Mm. <sighs> I love it. As I said, what what I loved even more than this movie, reading is more important than watching television. The book written by Richard Williams, Black and White, the way I see it all about racism, white supremacy. Poignantly, I remember when he talks about growing up in the South, Louisiana, Mississippi and the Klan. He talks about they didn't allow black people to swim which continues to be the case today, unfortunately, and how many black children uh, died going to creeks and things. Uh, he also talked about uh, joining in the 60s nonviolence and a white man was going to piss on him. That's what he said. And he said he was ready to go and attack this white man and someone intervened. And then he got booted out of nonviolence because he was not about to allow that to happen. Woo! I said that was homoerotic too, like urinating on someone. But I'm skipping... So later in black and white, the way I see it, where Mr. Williams, he writes, as we got closer to Venus's birth, it seemed like every three or four days or would go to the hospital. Finally, they said she was ready to deliver and I took her to have Venus as I was putting on the gown and slippers to go to the labor room. I started thinking about all the things I wanted Venus to do to play tennis, to be educated to be a certain kind of person. Then I thought about what that little baby was going to experience if she was going to do all that. She was going to go through all the prejudice I had been through. She was going to be called names. She was going to be called nigger. I could visualize it all and I didn't want that for my child. Suddenly I couldn't bear for Venus to come into this world. Not that I didn't love her. Of course I did. I didn't love what she would have to go through. And if there was any way I could have stopped it, I would have. I started to yell. Pain tightened my chest and sweat poured off me like I was having a massive heart attack. May have been. My life rose up to haunt me and I couldn't bear my child having to go through what I experienced. The nurses wanted to know what was wrong, but I couldn't share with them what was happening inside me. It turned out Oracine was having a false labor, so I calmed myself down and we headed back home. On the way, she asked me, did you hear some fool hollering his head off in the hallway? He was yelling and screaming and disturbing everyone. 
I didn't want to tell her that fool was me. I will stop there as I said black and white the way I see it is right there on the tip of my top 10 I just don't reference it quite as often as some other books that I think are more important but whoo, it is amazing this is the passage that I thought of uh, the climax this is probably my favorite scene uh, of the film and you kind of talked a little bit about this earlier in terms of how could Venus disappoint him given what he just wrote climax scene from King Richard so you want to play I don't know why you won't let me plus you think I'm not ready When I was a little boy, I grew up in Shreveport. One day my father took me to town. He gave me this money to pay this white man for something. Back in them days, black folks weren't allowed to touch white peoples. So I went to get a man this money and I accidentally touched his hand. And he stopped beating on me. He knocked me down, his friends come over, they all start stomping on me and beating on me. And I look up and I see my father in the crowd. And he took off running. Left me there with these grown men beating on me. Now, I haven't been no great daddy. But I've never done nothing but try to protect you. This next step you got to take. It would, it would be hard for anybody. But for you, you're not going to just be representing you. You're going to be representing every little black girl on earth. And you're going to be the one got to go through that gate. And I just never wanted you to look up see your daddy running away. Daddy, you always said I'd be number one in the world, right? Let's go out there and show all of those people that I can handle what's coming. And I'm not going to let you down. How could you, Julia? Easily one of my favorite movies of all time. I do not know when you will see a movie portraying black people not as machines and robots and lackeys to cheer on white people. This, unlike Marvel's Black Panther, is not the product of white people, contrary to Grace. Uh, this is, yeah, real life black people, their actual story working against racism to produce sports icons. Uh, 
your thoughts on this uh, climax scene, Andy, or the uh, the passage that preceded it, Dr. Kevorkian? Yeah, first, thank you for, for drawing attention to Richard Williams' Black and White, the way I see it, and uh, something that sounds like very much worth reading. Um, good to know. Yeah, I found this, this, this climax scene to be uh, very, very powerful um, for all the reasons that, that we discussed. Um, and you know, there's a, still it's it's touched by the real real sadness of of you know his experience uh, in Shreveport growing up, uh, but you know a sad and oppressive experience that has not defeated him, um, and that you know will will not allow to defeat his his, his children. Um, you know, I just want to say you know about portraying uh, you know non-white people as other than machines there's there's a, there's like just one moment and the movie doesn't do it but you know where one of the coaches whispers uh to venus you're a killing machine and then says that wasn't for you richard and so what we see there is that that coach is trying to cast her in a certain role and also understands that Richard wouldn't be having that portrayal of her, right? It's not really to be a killing machine, you know, it's, it's really to be a champion, but that's a totally different thing. Um, this is a, a movie that, you know, which, you know, Serena Venus Williams has executive producer status, uh, got a non-white director. Uh, it's a story, as you say, of, of black people triumphing on their own terms uh, and to see in that moment that divergence between the various ways that white people would tend to represent these people uh, and the way that actually Richard uh, and Orsine raised this family to see themselves as being totally contrary uh, to those formulas. Um, just, one, just one brief side note, like, you know, there are examples in popular culture where I think there's probably less control over the representation and I haven't really figured it out but I don't know if you've seen the direct TV ad that kind of shows Serena and the Matrix or as, as kind of playing a, uh, with, the, with the green Matrix code and everything else uh, does tend to, it made me think of um, what she said about the Kawhi Leonard ad, that there are ways in which you know popular representations will then revert to what that coach was whispering about uh, the killing machine. But I think that this film in its whole arc and its celebration of the story that Richard Williams and Orson want told about their, their family is powerful antidote and refusal of that kind of constrictive role. I have seen that commercial. I didn't even connected back to your book there it is again uh the the whole theme of uh color monitors we've got all the the green coating uh over serena williams just like with Kawhi leonard he was uh the terminator cyborg uh just a couple years they might still be playing that commercial a year or two uh back but yeah that's uh i wish i had included that snippet 
of the white coach saying that because that's so true. He says uh, Richard Williams is right there and recording everything. And, and he even asked, like, what did you say? What did you say? And he said, that wasn't for you. Uh, exactly as you said, like that's total contrary to their whole training paradigm. And even uh, Dr. Well, I mentioned her so many times. Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, she has a whole passage in the ISIS papers where she speaks specifically about John McEnroe uh, and the late great Arthur Ashe uh, and how Arthur Ashe, he was not a killing machine. He didn't talk about tennis as, you know, this is a game I'm willing to die for. Uh, and he said John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors, they talked about it as life and death and kill or be killed. Exactly what the white coach said, killing machine. And he said, I don't conceptualize it that way at all. And she talked about how that's related to racism, white supremacy, and what these ball games symbolically are about, even Twinkies symbolically, what is all of this about? But that's uh, and why white people would be so furious about these black girls encroaching on their domain. Same thing like with Tiger Woods encroaching on their domain. Why would they be so upset uh, about this? Uh, and why would they be so upset about Richard Williams being so direct and bold in, in how he approaches all this? Uh, I had seen some charges uh, that King Richard uh, is sexist, uh, patriarchal, uh, and that it's titled King Richard, even though it's about Venus and Serena Williams. Even though I do point out people who I guess are saying that they thought it maybe should be called Venus and Serena. There's already a film called Venus and Serena and it's been out for like a decade it's a documentary I don't know if they need every film that comes out about Venus and Serena to be named after them specifically but that already exists either way uh, there have been a number of charges that this film uh, is sexist and focusing on Richard Williams uh, as the patriarch who put all this together and saying that he's responsible as opposed to putting more of the focus uh, in uh, a claim uh, for all of this to Venus and Serena. I think you pointed out Venus and Serena, they are executive uh, producers for this project. So I suspect they had some sway about what was going to happen and what the final product uh, turned out to be. I guess before we get your response, I just wanted to add that I, I do really appreciate uh, Orsine Price having such a strong uh, role uh, in the film. Uh, Anjane Ellis, hope I'm not butchering her name, my apologies, I'm a victim, uh, played by Anjane Ellis, uh, portraying uh, Orsine Price, uh, but she they have arguments, like Richard Williams is not presented as perfect, he says just himself, I'm not a perfect dad, uh, but they have arguments, Orsine Price challenges him about, hey, I corrected that stance, you messed it up, I had to go back and correct what you messed up, uh, and she challenges him about not including her in decisions, they argue several times in the film, they argue when he leaves them uh, at the store, so he is not uh, presented as a perfect parent they aren't presented as having a perfect marriage they do divorce uh, about a decade after the events pre uh, presented in this film are depicted but uh, what what do you make of charges that this is a sexist movie focusing on this black male for the story of these two amazing black females yeah I mean I, I, I do suspect that it a lot of it is just taking a, a you know a quick hot take based on the title and not with a deeper engagement of what this this film is about. And I guess, yeah, you're quite right. You can't just film call every film Venus and Serena. I suppose it, it could have been called, you know, Richard and Orsine, but I mean, people, I, I don't know. 
if they wanted a catchy title. This service is provided in high definition. Access code accepted. There are five participants in the conference. Q&A session has started. The recording has started. Um, and do it themselves. So um, that that's my feeling about it. Um, you know, I... I is to, you know the motivations for those those criticisms. I think there there probably are are different ones. There are probably people who have you know genuine concerns about about patriarchy and want to make sure that that is brought it uh, questions about that are brought into the conversation. Um, but you know again, it there are other versions of that critique that can be a way of then trying to to undermine what would otherwise be a, a much needed. Uh, celebratory portrait of a strong, strong black man, and you know, giving him the giving him the title role. I think it's uh, Will Smith's best work. Um, I'm thinking over the arc of his career. I don't know what when people say what's the best film Will Smith ever did. I don't know, you know, if it's Ali. We talked about Hancock. I hope it's not that one. Uh, Six Degrees of Separation. Uh, I don't know, seven pounds. I don't know. You know, he has a, a lengthy uh, career. He's done a lot of films. Uh, this this would be my I don't even think it's close. Like just I was absolutely stunned. Like I can only say I was really excited. I normally do not enjoy look forward to or even view films that have a predominantly black cast. I was looking once I saw that this was going to be made. Oh, I was super excited uh, remembering Mr. Williams book. Then when it came out, I was not disappointed at all. I was absolutely stunned. It made me look back at the book. I wrote a review. <laughs> it just needs to be published. And oh uh, yeah, I, I think it's amazing. And like I said, those, those critiques of patriarchy and I just, I generally give them a side, eye, especially if you've seen this film, it would be one thing if, you know, Richard Williams was never critiqued and he's just absolute, the most perfect dad ever who never did any wrong and nobody says a bad word about him if that were the case like, oh, okay maybe but that is not this film at all and or a scene price she has such she's not just like a a straw person who's there to to she is not the cheerleader for richard williams that's not the case at all uh in this film she challenges him and she has a, a huge role uh, with her daughter, I mean, right there, the scene uh, directly following uh, the scene with Richard Williams and Venus at the tennis court. And, you know, how could you disappoint me or let me down, Junior? The scene with Serena and Venus, she's doing their hair. And I mean, you want to talk about cheerleading like oh, cheerleading on her little girls uh, and reminding them of Sojourner Truth. And again, like you were saying, not forgetting that history, not forgetting who you are. We got your back and go out and be oh, one of my favorite movies all time. Um, just wow. It certainly could have been or a scene and Richard. Maybe that's not as catch. I'm sure they could have pitched. That. I'm sure if Venus and Serena wanted it to be called or a scene and Richard, that's what it would have been called. 
Uh, let's see. I think I'm stunned. I, I did a little bit neglect the phone line. I just got entranced. There's so many different films and such. Uh, for the folks that are listening in, sorry if I missed a hand. If you have a quick question that you want again for Dr. Kevorkian about any of the four films that we've discussed, something you know stood out or a detail, something didn't seem uh, to make sense or what have you. If you've seen any of these films and something that you thought was really important that we neglected, feel free. The number seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound uh press star six one will nab your hand i uh, know you went way over time i always do a bad job of judging time we have uh films and plus with these four like man i could have played sound clips from mandalay for days uh, die hard Woof. uh probably all of these uh lots more sound clips um well i give folks i'll just give them like maybe two minutes to see if any of the folks listening live if y'all have a quick question for Dr. Kevorkian about what we've discussed uh, did we neglect anything from any of the, the four films any notes that, that you had jotted down to share with us that we missed out on uh, you know I first of all I was super grateful for the way in which you line up these quick clips I know that's a ton of work you do it in such an orderly way and uh, you know I think you were very efficient and uh, really the inefficiency is you've got a rambling English professor talking on the other end of the line so uh, thank you for helping to give structure uh, to what we're attempting to do here and give insight but it's particularly it was, it's a joy to be able to celebrate you know King Richard with you for sure always uh, informative again for listeners this is not just at least for me this is not just ooh look what cool things i saw on netflix or you know streamed or movies that i remember from my childhood like <laughs> die hard and things of that nature not where well, i mean i guess it could be but i mean the primary objective with all of this is as i stated understanding racism white supremacy uh i strongly submit uh, individuals who practice racism, white supremacy, they understand these tropes, even if it's at a subconscious level, even though I suspect for a lot of folks, they've been repeated for so long. It's got to be conscious. How could it not be? Uh, but the fact that they keep repeating in all of the films, even though 25 years can pass and you see the same types of patterns roles for black people and how racism is constructed in these films, maybe with the exception of Mandalay quite a bit to pay attention to uh, hopefully uh, any of the folks if you that are listening in if you've not seen these films if you check them out you'll be a little bit more mindful uh, some of the things that you can pay attention to uh, during the course uh, of the movie uh, if you have already seen them maybe go back and watch again see if some things uh, stick out uh, that you maybe hadn't thought of especially Die Hard like woo, Argyle and Theo uh, I will assume folks are, are satisfied. I know for some folks like, oh my gosh, all the overtime and all the rest of it. Uh, folks listening to the archives, you can take it in at your leisure process. Think about some of what has been presented. Uh, the text uh, that we have. Oh, oh, I did see hand go up. Let's see our caller at one one five nine one one five nine. Did you have a question for Dr. Kevorkian? You should be with us. <clears throat> Um, greetings, guys. Greetings, um, Dr. Kowalski, quality listeners. Uh, thank you for the broadcast. It was um, very, very, very um, constructive. And um, Dr. Kowalski, um, 
I just I didn't know you were going to be on the show, and I was reading your your book today, um, while I was um teaching a class, and I noticed that um all of the students were um just the way the school is ran is technology. Um, we have to put the kids in front of technology to for for them to do anything in the school these days. And I and I was just reminded of your of your book, and I'd like to, to to hear your thoughts on that on technology and and schools. I know it's not about the film per se, but it was, your book was mentioned in this broadcast. Yeah, thank you, thank you for for listening. Thank you for 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 reading the book. Uh, you know, I think uh, even more so, you know, in the COVID era, technology has become an absolute necessity for. Uh, the way in which uh, people gain ac- access to education. So, you know, I, I understand that, that, you know, I'm talking about representations of putting people in front of screens in ways that that constrains the body and, and limits them. Um, but I, I don't mean to, to suggest that as a critique that would be disabling to the educational opportunities that, you know, you can get your education reading a screen or reading a book. I mean, you're reading, you know, that way what, you know, Gus uh, T. says, you know, reading is more important than, than watching movies. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily say, you know, like the page is uh, more important than the screen or that the screen is always about, you know, controlling or programming someone. Um, is, have I uh, addressed the, have I addressed your question? Uh, about you know you're you're asking me about the feelings of putting people in front of screens, yeah. Yeah, uh, I I I hear I understand what you're saying, but the way I'm seeing the technology being used is um they're making um like um learning um fun and the way they're making it fun is they're using all these like video games like these video games mm. that um are supposed to be like um learning games, but if you really pay attention to it. I, I don't really um, see a lot of constructive value in it, but maybe no. I, I no. I I I I hear you there. There are there are certain things I think that can be taught by what's called gamification. Uh, you know, uh, but I still very much believe in the in the written text. So you know, I was thinking of a scenario where someone's reading a text on a on a screen and not being taught this kind of uh, you know twitch response. Uh, stimulus response of of of, of games and, and reactions like that. Um, I think that it, that is indeed something um, to be cautious about. Um, so yeah, so uh, thinking. Oh, I, I know what I was. I'm sorry. This is going to be. I, I, I know we people may not have seen it, but uh, you know there are all other concerns about. Uh, the ways technology is used in learning. And I actually thought a pretty good critique of that was, I don't know if people have seen the show Abbott Elementary, but the latest episode was called New Technology. And it's about how they install, you know, what's supposed to supposedly these reading programs um, uh, for these kids in a, in a Philadelphia school that's severely underfunded. Uh, it's a show that was uh, it's created in stars, uh, Quinta Brunson, um, but it, it's revealed, you know, later on in the show that these programs that were supposed to be for learning uh, and uh, taking in test scores for reading were actually going to be selling 
uh, data to people who are going to be planning based upon these scores how many prisons they would need to build in the future. Um, so there is a way in which, you know, some of those technologies of gathering information on, you know, young people and how they're behaving in front of the screen uh, can be, you know, uh, understood to be quite sinister. So uh, anyhow, I don't know if you're familiar with the show Abbott Elementary, and I know that we're, you know, that wasn't on the syllabus for today's discussion, but uh, I thought that recent episode of that show was quite broken in that way about uh, the misuse of technology in education. Our caller in California, did that answer your question, sir? Um, yes, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. And um, yes, I, I see the technology being used to sabotage the, the students just really in, in plain sight. But thank you so much for answering the question. And thank you so much, Gus. For sure. Uh, I, it reminded me of uh, Neil Postman. Uh, he wrote uh, Stupid Talk, Crazy Talk, which we did read in the book club, uh, all about words and being precise with words. Uh, but he also wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death, uh, which is about that exactly uh, the dangers uh, of turning education into some sort of entertainment uh, with technology and screens and that sort of thing. Uh, where it's supposed to be, hey, this will make, you know, learning more fun, get them more engaged, which just makes them think learning had better be entertaining and amusing if I'm going to do it. If it's not entertaining, then I'm not doing it. Uh, and a lot of other things. Uh, but Neil Postman, very important. He talks a lot about context, in fact, in that book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, how that can erode context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anywho, uh, much obliged to folks listening in live or archived. Hope you have learned some things that help you get a better grasp of what racism, white supremacy is, how it works. Uh, and again, not to just be kind of mindlessly in front of the television, because these concepts, even if you're not grasping the significance of Argyle and Theo and all of that and how this is just playing out a different form of blackface. Uh, it does have an impact. Even the all of the messaging about helping white people. My goodness, Gus T. How many times that's come up over the years with Dr. Kevorkian? That for sure impacts your thought, speech, conduct, emotions as a non-white person victim of racism. If you are constantly being bombarded with help white people, help white people, cheer for white people, cheer on John McClain cheer on grace that's why you're here help neo help keanu reeves and all the rest because we hear this over and over again like hey that is not how we replace white supremacy with justice it has been a hoot we have lots of homework abbott elementary and Brene brown and just wow lots of uh lots of homework we'll call it uh we have been chatting it up once again eric tang top of the list uh, once again, the author of Color Monitors, the Blackface of Technology in America, has been with us many, many times over the years. Always a pleasure. Hopefully folks learn a lot again. Uh, our guest, Dr. Martin Kevorkian, 
Thank you so much for being generous with your time and insight. Uh, hopefully, we will not be around for another Matrix program. We'll have this problem solved before then, but we will look forward to the next time we can chat it up, hopefully about some films, offer something constructive, sir. Uh, enjoy the rest of your Wednesday evening. Likewise. Thank you so much, Mr. Rudy. I really appreciate it. Much obliged, sir. Take excellent care, and we will speak again. Have a great evening. Context of white supremacy, Dr. Martin Kevorkian, once again, you know lots of folks have said over the years that they appreciate the film reviews if they've already seen the films or if they haven't and then they can go watch them after they hear the discussion or, you know, whichever way, maybe re-watch them with the discussion. But this is not about lazy TV watching, just about, man, everything on the screen, Netflix, Hulu, whatever is white supremacy racism whether you recognize it or not we will be oh, we got to do Candyman. if we are on the air long enough we have to get dr kevorkian to do Candyman. man uh we are reading alice seabold's lucky already mentioned it we're wrapping it up tomorrow oh my gosh this was going to be a, we would have been doing a review of this flipping book with dr kevorkian about the raping negro uh, if they had been a little bit slower with the exoneration and all that coming out. But we'll wrap that up tomorrow. I'm so excited. Uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Last time around. Uh, much obliged for the folks who uh, were with us live. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Uh, we did some overtime, but maybe you have to do three films next time so we can be in a normal time gap. Anywho. Uh, replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible sobriety would be best be maximum careful if you are out and about lots of armed race soldiers no name calling no gossiping cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim Your brother you a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>